Magnav is an Irish word encompassing reflection, contemplation, meditation, and thought. Magnav 100 has been an invitation from the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, for us all to join him in reflecting on those seminal events of just 100 years ago on this island and further afield, their causes, their consequences, and the influence they've had and may still be having on our history. As has been reflected in this Magnav 100 series of seminars over recent years, history can be a contested and emotive subject. It is often viewed very differently depending on one's nationality, sense of identity, tradition, or background. History can be selectively recalled, forgotten, or ignored. And one must bear in mind that it has also been used as a means of justifying contemporary action or inaction. A central motivation for President Higgins in bringing us this Magnav 100 series has been to provide a space where through a fuller, more inclusive understanding of our shared past, we might acknowledge its complexity and contradictions and perhaps free ourselves to examine options for a better shared future. Already in this Magnav series, we have considered the nature of commemoration itself, the nature of empire a century ago. We've had special Magnav seminar, which focused on issues of social class, land, and the role of women. And I should mention that the proceedings of those first three seminars have been published in book form. It's an e-book, free of charge. It can be downloaded from the website www.president.ie. The fourth seminar was entitled Settlement, Schism, and Civil Strife, covered the events precipitated just a century ago by the treaty split and the Civil War. Machna V was concerned with the emergence of the two states in Ireland a century ago, the Free State and Northern Ireland. And our final Machnav is entitled, appropriately enough, Memory, History and Imagination. Our format will be our usual one. Our keynote speaker, Professor Declan Kybert, speaks first, and this will be followed by reflections on that paper from Lilia Doolan, Professor Angela Burke, Fergal Keane, and then President Higgins. Following that, there will be a questions and answers session with our invited guests. And before calling on our opening speaker, President Higgins will welcome all to the Hyde Room at Oris Anuthron. President Higgins. Today's Machnav 100 seminar, Machnav 6, is bringing to a close a series of six seminars which I have organized over the past two years in Oris Anuthron. We sought to reflect on the seminal events and their social basis, too, that would later result in the birth of the Irish Republic. In our consideration, we were conscious of the rules of memory, history, and imagination in the task of ethical commemoration. In doing so, we were respecting the inherent complexity, as well as the inevitable aspects of contestation, that such a consideration may suggest. Far from seeking to achieve a single perspective, we sought drawing on new and refreshed research and publication to lay out a factual framework in as inclusive a way as possible. This final Magnav seminar provides an opportunity for reflection, looking back across all five seminars. Over the past two years, these seminars have examined a wide range of subjects, such as the challenges of public commemorations, including empire, instincts, interests, power and resistance, land, social class, gender, and sources of violence. We sought to cover the experience from below, 
as well as constitutional, institutional, and ideological foundations, complexity, and contestation. The seminars have intentionally encompassed a wide breadth of historiographical subject matter, and have had contributions from an equally wide and diverse group of experts to whom I am profoundly grateful. Today, as before, I have invited leading scholars with diverse experience and perspectives to share their insights on the context and events of that formative period of a century ago. And if they wish to make a reflection on the nature of the act of commemoration itself, the motivation in convening Machna 100 has been to tackle with authenticity the complexity of the period, to participate in the investigation of motives, tease out social contexts, including those perhaps insufficiently acknowledged from below. Our purpose was not the assertion of definitive conclusions, rather to leave the matters adequately open. Our efforts are aimed at understanding, understanding in relation to the past, which I hope may assist us in addressing our present and future challenges on this, our shared island. <coughs> may I thank once more Dr. John Bowman for chairing these seminars and for the outstanding job he has done throughout. And may I also pay special thanks to Professor Garrod Otuhig for his invaluable advice and assistance over the past two years. May I thank to those who agreed to participate in today's final Mock Number 100 seminar by providing original papers on various aspects of this period under examination. We are fortunate to have with us distinguished and remarkable contributors. Today's principal address will be provided by author and historian Professor Declan Kybert of the University of Notre Dame and University College Dublin. Responses will be made by cultural theorist and practitioner, film producer Lilia Doolan, academic Professor Angela Burke of University College Dublin, Fergal Keane, author and journalist with the BBC. My own address will be entitled 1922, the most significant year question. As to our previous seminars, our inaugural seminar held in December 2020 examined the nature and concept of commemoration itself in the context of today and of the national and global events of a century ago. Speakers included Professors Kieron Benson, Anne Dolan, Michael Laffin, and York Learson, and myself. And together we set our intentions for what we were hoping to achieve from this series. In February of last year, I hosted the second seminar, which focused on empire, imperial attitudes and responses as they related to circumstances in Ireland. The main reflection was given by Professor John Horn, with responses from Professor Eunan O'Halpin, Dr. Mary Coleman, Professor Alvin Jackson, Dr. Neil Gallagher and myself. The third Mountain of 100 seminar took place in May last year and was entitled Recovering Reimagined Futures, this seminar focused on issues of land, social class, gender, and the sources of violence. And speakers included Dr. Marcia Callaghan, Archivist Katrina Crow, Dr. John Cunningham, Dr. Katrina Clare, Professor Linda Connolly, and myself. The fourth seminar took place in November last year, focusing on the truce, the treaty, and partition. 
its own Professor Dermot Ferriter of University College Dublin provide the principal address and respondents, in addition to myself, included Professors Mary Daly and Margaret Kelleher, both of University College Dublin, Dr Dahlia Coron of Dublin City University and Professor Fargal McGarry of Queen's University Belfast. Our penultimate seminar held in May this year Consider the constitutional, institutional and ideological foundations of the emerging Irish state a century ago. The principal address was provided by Professor Brendan O'Leary of the University of Pennsylvania, with responses from Professor Henry Patterson of the University of Ulster, Professor Lindsay Erner Byrne of University College Cork, Dr. Theresa Reedy also of University College Cork and myself. All of these previous papers, as you have heard, are available to view on the Machnaf 100 section of the President of Ireland website. And may I take this opportunity to thank RTE for hosting the entire series on the RTE player, which has ensured a wide, indeed global audience. I hope that you find Machnaf 6, our final seminar, thought-provoking, perhaps even challenging, and above all a reminder that the work which we have undertaken over these six seminars represents an invitation to history, which, when its complexity and fullness is respected, can make such a valuable contribution to the vital task that is ethical commemoration. Faltero Viliak, Buenciánovas and Seminar. We now open Machnov 6, which I remind you is entitled Memory, History and Imagination. First, our keynote speaker, Professor Declan Kybert, has been Professor of Anglo-Irish Literature at UCD, on the board of the Abbey Theatre, prolific author, has been visiting Professor at the Sorbonne and at Cambridge, and currently teaches at the University of Notre Dame in Dublin. Declan Kybert. Early in 2016, I got a phone call from the Irish Times. Two of my great-uncle Edward Keegan's 1916 medals had gone on sale in New York, and though the newspaper wanted to purchase them, it very considerately wanted to check that this was okay with the Keegan family. Edward had been dismissed from the newspaper after the rising, and the Irish Times wanted to make amends. So I phoned my auntie Maura, who was the oldest surviving Keegan and the younger sister of my dead mother, and after some debate, we agreed it was a nice idea, especially as the newspaper would put the medals on display. On the same day as the medals were unveiled in Tara Street, a plaque, uh, an enhanced plaque was revealed in the Abbey Theatre. Added to it were the names of Patrick and Willie Pierce, Tom McDonough, and our great uncle. Edward had so impressed the great Yates by his acting that he'd been offered a full-time post in the theatre. But his wife, who also had children to consider, thought WB was a bit flaky, and she urged her husband to hold on to his reliable job in the ad section of the Irish Times. Edward's, Edward was shot through the lung in hand-to-hand -hand fighting in the South Dublin Union, which I think must have been terrifying for all concerned, and especially for the poor patients who had to sit through it. But Edward never again enjoyed full health. 
and his family almost certainly had to pawn those medals. In a gesture of kindness, the Abbey Theatre gave him a job as assistant stage manager, which he had at the time of his death in 1938. In the years before that, he did a lot of voluntary work, advancing the case for pensions for forgotten veterans of the Rising. Like his brothers Joe and Tom, who was my maternal grandfather, he'd been a member of the Lawrence O'Toole Pipe Band and its hurling club, as well as of the Gaelic League and the Irish Volunteers. And like each brother, he took no part in the Civil War, which he regarded as a disaster, that former friends should kill one another on the basis of rather abstracted argument. In this, I think, the Keegans were very typical of the 1916 generation, surprisingly few of whom fought in the inaptly named Koga Nagarad. Instead, they returned to cultural activities, those activities which had first brought them into the national movement. The Abbey plaque was the brainchild of Stephen Ray, who said a few gentle words at its unveiling. But the later event at the Irish Times proved strangely different. There was brief mention of Edward Keegan, after which an academic historian from my old university spoke for over 35 minutes on the importance of Commonwealth, Fine Gael, in the establishment and consolidation of the Irish state. Now, I, find, I found that a bit strange, though in some ways not, because of course I had spent 34 years in UCD. Um, in recent years, the decade of commemorations was dominated by speakers from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, neither of which really existed as parties in the period we're covering, 1912 to 22. It was as if these latecomers to the feast were obsessed with inserting themselves into the narrative. And when more recently the time came to commemorate the Civil War, the joint presence of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as speakers at Bailnam Law was seen as a sign of maturity breakthrough into open-heartedness. The bipolar theory that veterans of the War of Independence had all taken one side or the other in the Civil War was somehow seen as axiomatic, as the two parties which emerged from that war jockeyed their representatives into self-congratulatory positions. The role of the Labour Party leader at that time, Tom Johnson, in seeking a peace between the belligerents didn't receive much mention nor did the part played by Labour in the many events commemorated, the agonizing decision not to contest the 1918 election, the Soviet established in Limerick, ongoing agitation for the rights of women and children. A private security firm had been hired in 2013 with no sense of irony to control and monitor crowds which marked the anniversary of the Dublin lockout of 1913. It was all too reminiscent of Conor Cruz O'Brien's famous remark during the 66 commemorations that the two major parties were in danger of commemorating themselves to death. And although I live in Clontarf, I don't recall any major state or national event at Tom Johnson's grave in the local cemetery, or any mention that his suggestion that the rights of children, which had featured in the radical theories of the democratic program of the first Dáil 1919, should be written into the 1922 Constitution. In a previous Machnaf paper, President Higgins has recalled how Tom Johnson's condemnation of non-judicial executions, quote, brought him not any thanks but death threats from Liam Lynch on behalf of the anti-treatyites. I think the reluctance to reproduce many of the radical ideas of the Easter Proclamation or the democratic program in subsequent constitutions 
was probably based on the notion that ideas as such were dangerous. People often blame the Civil War on hair-splitting exponents of abstract notions. And this allergy to radical new ideas was amplified, especially if they were supported by radical women. Although Maud Gonne and Mary McSweeney won reputations as unmanageable revolutionaries, most women of the period wanted peace and confined their gestures to sending papers and tobacco to comfort men in jail, sometimes helping a person on the run to find a dugout in which to hide. But the role of women in trying to broker a peace in 1922, Republicans without malice, as Augusta Gregory called them, this proved futile. Hannah Skeffington has written of how, when she went to plead with Collins, she found only a man with a touch of the dictator, whose ideal Ireland was a replica of the British state, quote, with the usual soldier's contempt for civilians, particularly women, though these had often risked their lives to help him. Thus, Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. Lady Gregory's deputation to Kevin O'Higgins got short shrift, derided as, quote, hysterical young women who ought to be playing five-finger exercises or helping their mothers with the brasses. So, what then, I ask, was the Civil War all about? It was hardly the North, yet everyone knew that Collins intended at some point to invade and reclaim it. Was it the Oath of Allegiance? It was hardly that either, except for those extreme idealists who lacked the patience to wait for expanded versions of freedom. They could have sworn the oath as an empty coercive formula and simply forgotten it. In later years, they would swear many oaths, which they forgot all too quickly indeed, showing that the Irish have a wonderful gift for amnesia as well as for remembering. Um, the Civil War drew in some of these idealists, but I think also the kind of male who by 1922 had been convinced that alternative organizations of militancy were not available and had come to regard the state of war and fighting as almost normal. It's significant that wherever the British went, they created a cult around the world of soldierhood. And when they withdrew from a country, they often left conditions ripe for civil strife. Of course, in any but a strictly military sense, it's often difficult to assign a specific date to a civil war. In the Irish case, there were internal divisions long before 1922. And these were still being played out, I think, in attempts, in attempts by Fianna Fáil to dominate the 1966 memorial events. Those of us old enough remember the writing out of Connolly from that particular script, or by Fine Gael to make similar efforts to link their party traditions to key moments in the decade of commemoration, which I encountered in the head office of the Irish Times. The British often withdrew precipitately before they had trained the colonized people in the art of government, although it's only fair to add that the civil service saw a fairly seamless transition and local government had been well reorganized by them. But George Russell, cooperator and poet, foresaw the coming political crisis in civic politics as early as 1916 when he wrote, there is a danger in revolution if the revolutionary spirit is much more advanced than the moral qualities which alone can secure the success of a revolt. These intellectual and moral qualities, the skill to organize, the wisdom to control large undertakings, they are not natural gifts, but the result of experience. I think that it, is, it was of these qualities that W.B. Yeats was thinking when he wrote that song, which is that poem, which is no longer safe for the classroom, as one professor told me, 
Lida and the Swan. Um, if Lida is the perennial Irish girl and the Swan a version of the invading power, the question at the end makes a sudden political sense. Did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop? The girl has feeling, the swan knowledge, and the poem is a reworking of a story of rape and brutal withdrawal. That final question could be asking, when the Irish took over power from the empire, did they also take on the century's home skill of self-government, knowledge? The indifferent beak whose violence is captured in those monosyllabic plosives, beak, drop, becomes Yeats's judgment on the callous suddenness of an ill-prepared British withdrawal, something that was going to be repeated in India, Cyprus, etc., etc., etc. So is that closer to what the Civil War was about? Out of the quarrel with ourselves we make poetry, Yeats said, perhaps thinking of what Ernie O'Malley called the lyric phase of the revolution, but from the quarrel with others we make prose that bitter, hard-edged realism which led to appalling atrocities, both by Free Stater and Republican, and the burning out of many decent people, such as Horace Plunkett, at just that point when he intended to bequeath his house to the nation. George Russell said that the idealism of Yeats and the revival had given way to the realism of Joyce and O'Flaherty, an exploration of the sewers, and that this was perhaps an inevitable antidote Joyce, in other words, was made inevitable by the poetry of Yeats. The lyric phase was bound sooner or later to contain the essential criticism of the poetry to which it adhered. As to the rhetoric which characterized these events, the robust integrity of the treaty debates might be considered the last high-voltage expression of the nation's quarrel with itself, citizens' rights, social democracy, cultural self-determination. That disputants of such eloquence should soon be at war with each other was a dire tragedy indeed. And yet there hangs over that debate a sense of uncertainty. Its speakers had sought various dreams of which they couldn't fully speak. They could speak only of having sought them. It's like Joyce's Ulysses. Their Ireland was becoming an answer to a question which nobody had exactly asked or fully asked. The disputants, in the words of Patrick O'Farrell, were looking not so much for an answer as for a meaning to their question. Back in 1916, the rebels had played a role, assuming a republic in order to prove its existence. Many had behaved like actors. Indeed, many, like Edward Keegan, were actors. The problem was like that defined a generation earlier by Oscar Wilde. The first duty in life is to adopt a pose, and what the second is, no one has yet found out. Had the contributors to the treaty debates any real agreement as to what they were fighting for? Land, certainly, for many of the poorer participants, like the Keegans, had been evicted in earlier decades from family farms. But beyond that, when Tomás O'Crihan asked fellow islanders on the Blasket, recorded in his book, Alagar Nehinishe, Aber an Fuckel Republic in Wailing, say the word republic in Irish, his fellow islanders found they had no such word. Agus is byog achwer a salaher imni ach irid arif, and its little its attainment worried you either, was Tomás's laconic reply. The burning out of Protestant houses has less of a sectarian dimension than is sometimes assumed in the narratives. Many of its exponents just wanted their land back, 
And compared with Russia, few enough big houses got burnt in the War of Independence. Of course, many more were torched in the Civil War, often by people who expected to uh, obtain more land for their family farms. But some of the perpetrators, half apologetic for what they were doing, helped the aristocrats save family heirlooms, as Terence Dooley showed in that great recent book. And he also showed how some more crude operatives simply looted the houses, and that Catholic landlords were shot too, because their land was also felt to have been stolen from rightful owners. There's no doubt that many Protestants who left for England felt no longer welcome in Ireland or loved, and the closing of their houses and abandonment of their domains removed good jobs from Catholic as well as Protestant. But there is complexity here too. My Trinity roommate in the 1970s, his grandfather was a doctor in Greystones and Dawkey, a man who served in the Crown forces and lost a leg at Ypres. But he also cared for the local poor in Greystones and Dawkey, often without charge. And when his name was added to the list of men to be assassinated as members of the Crown forces, the local IRA alerted him and kept him in a hidden place until the danger had passed. And his family and descendants lived on happily in Ireland. Of course, these were frenetic times. The sheer effort expended in expelling the British from 26 counties, not to mention fighting for small countries in World War I and the Black and Tan Terror, all that had left people exhausted and in no mood to reimagine the national condition. I think a majority wearily accepted the treaty as the freedom to win further freedom. And indeed, great things were done in the early years of the state, such as building a power station, or broadcasting the first live sporting event, or improving the housing supply. But the old imperial-facing capital of Dublin was not relocated and replaced by a different city. Attitudes to schooling hardly changed at all. If anything, things went backwards. Pierce's idea of a sort of Montessori, child-centered arts and craft education made way for a dismal imitation of English public schools with their rote learning and corporal punishment designed to bring rebellious individuals back into line. It was no surprise that many people lapsed back, exhausted onto the received old forms, with imperial post boxes painted green and British guns once aimed at Easter rebels now borrowed to shoot out the rebels in the forecourts. In all of that, there is what Eric Fromm would later call the fear of freedom. The bleakness of freedom could seem lonely indeed, unconsciously projected perhaps by the sheer blankness that made the map of Ireland seem empty on those first free state postage stamps. Bernard Shaw captured that sense of baffled vacancy when he wrote in the Irish Statesman in 1928, when we were given a free hand to make good, we found ourselves with a shock that has taken all the moral pluck out of us as completely as shell shock. We can recover ourselves only by forcing ourselves to face new ideas. Meanwhile, the people, cowed by a rule-obsessed ecclesiocracy, behaved like apple lickers. People who, if tempted in the Garden of Eden, would, in the words of Sean O'Fallon, have licked rather than bitten the apple. So, you end up back with Oscar Wilde's question. What was that second idea after the initial pose was abandoned? Some 1916 rebels thought they had got closer to it. Tom McDonough said that the mystic, quote, seeks to express the things of God 
that are made known to him in no language. This might be one way of explaining the British complaint that whenever they came up with an answer, the Irish changed the question. That was because maybe they had no final idea as to what exactly the question was, some sort of mystical republic beyond description in any available language. James Joyce wrote about the uncreated conscience of the race. He said that the Irish working and middle class had yet to be made. Pierce, being Pierce, went much further. What if the dream come true and if millions unborn shall dwell in the house that I shaped in my heart, the noble house of my thought? Now, I think that gives a key role to the unconscious, a sort of imaginative surplus to be revealed only in the future, Ireland of the coming times. And indeed, Hamlet was a play well known to the rebels. It was being performed during Easter week. And in the course of it, the player king says, but orderly to end where I begun, our wills and faces do so contrary run that our devices still are overthrown our thoughts are ours, their ends, none of our own. In other words, the deed subverts its intended outcome. The unconscious does its will, bringing the people to a place they never expected to be. Or, as another Shakespearean king says, no thought is contented, for it will seek its object in the strange and in the new. If the people had known their destination to begin with, they would never have needed to go there. It's like when we scholars are asked to list outcomes on a report sheet. And sure, if we knew what the outcomes were, we wouldn't need to do the three years of research. <laughs> the exact same problem. I put it like this in literary critical terms. You need a self to narrate your story, but how can you presume to know a self until after the story is told? How can you represent the new in a language subsoiled with the messy precedents, the unknown expressed in terms of the known. Um, Robert Balla once pointed out to me that the fuzzy font on the Easter proclamation represents this problem, the fuzziness of the surrounding thinking. And one could say the same about O'Casey, who was generally careful to keep his rebels off the stage. As one of my colleagues once said, most of his gunmen are shadows. The same question was put by W.B. Yeats in his play Resurrection. What if there is always something that lies outside knowledge, outside order? What if at that moment when knowledge or order seem complete, that something appears? So the fight was to be about meaning and would seek an answer to a question that nobody had ever fully asked because nobody had thought through the ramifications of a republic in the days of the Irish Parliamentary Party, just as nobody had really thought of a book like Ulysses in the era of realist novels. But as in classic tragedy, the unaskable question, once it's put, shatters all the paradigms of the known world. In order to act, the Irish had to forget many scruples, transcend many scruples based on the past. They had to move by intuition. They acted upon impulse simply in order to discover what might happen next. And I think that's a truer, humbler account of the thinking that went into the Easter Rising Kids are asked to list the four main causes, but history doesn't work like that. And history, as Joyce thought it might, gave everyone a back kick. I've often noted that civil wars tend not to start or end on exact dates. Before she died, Joan Didion observed that the United States version of civil war wasn't yet over 
but was being carried forward into modern times by Trump's hatred of Obama. One could say the same about the competitive behavior of civil war parties in Ireland around commemoration. And the effects of civil war have been massive. Silence was one of them, emotional breakdown another. See McGahern's Amongst Women for samples are indeed a recent movie. And exile was a very common reaction. De Valera accused emigrants, as did Maud Gunn, of apostasy. But many went to the USA where their business skills flourished at a time when Ireland badly stood in need of that kind of skill. How often did I see a van bearing the name FX Brennan established 1927 in New York and lament the loss to an Ireland filled with timid professional men and few risk-taking entrepreneurs? As for the ranchers who replaced the landlords, their role had been anticipated and foretold over 100 years earlier when Thady Quirk took over Castle Rackrent on the terms most favorable to every middleman who followed him. Edgeworth foresaw the next 200 years. The Civil War had multiple antecedents indeed. If you wanted to, you could go back as far as Wexford and Waterford in 1169, the internal strife of the 12th century which led to the invasion of Ireland. But there's no doubt that an amazing number of intellectuals, whether participant or not, were so disgusted by the vicious civilian strife that they opted for various forms of emigration. Flan Campbell, for instance, went to the US in 1925 and effectively founded Irish studies there after the collapse of his marriage. Fordham University, University amalgamated his school into its English department in 1932, and he stayed teaching there until 1939. Sean O'Feynon left for literary study and teaching at Harvard. Prison allowed these figures to rethink their nationalist politics, as Frank O'Connor illustrated in his famous story, Guests of the Nation, about the plight of men forced to kill those who have actually become their friends. The losers of the Civil War were often socially disgraced, and many found it hard to get regular work in their old trades, or even communion at some altar rails. Most were landless laborers. Some went into the small-time pub trade, not for them the large rolling acres after the land acts. Yet the revolutionary spirit that swept Europe after 1918 led landless laborers to understand that they were persons of consequence in their own right. John McGarren, however, did not regard 1922 as a significant date. It was simply, he once said to me, a moment when responsibility for managing the decline of rural Ireland passed from one elite to another. The emerging grazier class was more interested in land ownership than land use, and in securing enough affluence to place a son in a diocesan college or to make another offspring an apprentice solicitor. People killed with respectability, mass ulacht, as the old phrase went, who could be relied upon to promote the appropriate ideology. So there were few to speak for those landless laborers who left in great numbers. His utter lack of interest in the radical ideas of the democratic program of 1919 meant that de Valera probably got fewer votes than he might have done in the early years of Fianna Fáil. Allegations that he was a Bolshevik put paid to all of that. His idolater and biographer Dorothy McArdle finally rebuked him for timidity in 1937, lamenting in a letter that Ireland was now a necropolis. 
an idea Brian Friel later developed in a play. By then, George Russell, editor of the Irish Statesman, had be decamped to England, where he helped P.L. Travers craft the tale of Mary Poppins. And then he went to the United States, where he advised the administration during the Dust Bowl years on the merits of rural cooperation. His friend Stephen McKenna, the great translator of Plotinus, companion to Singh, and editor of Uncle of Solish, also left for England. More than one in two people born in the island after 1900 were gone by the 1930s. What is remarkable is that so many with vibrant minds stayed and made things so much better in the 1960s with expressions of cultural self-belief linked to programs for economic development. It's almost ritual now to invoke the name of T.K. Whitaker in terms of economic development. But Whitaker saw the link with culture. He was the one who inspired Sean O'Toole to publish Ondunra, the poems of the dispossessed. He had a link with Kernini Clady, the revival in Irish music. He went every year to the Merriman School. I'm not sure that all the mandarins in the Department of Finance these days might be seen doing energetic sets in Listum Varna at the Merriman Winter School, but perhaps hope springs eternal. Independence did create immense possibilities for a country denied self-government for more than a century. But this exciting thought was tempered by the sense that things, in Lampedusa's words, had changed mainly so that they could remain the same. The Civil War, as I say, led to a distrust of anyone who made an idea or a scheme the basis of an action. Science wasn't greatly esteemed in schools when I attended my secondary, nor indeed was literature, which had helped to invent Ireland, but now found itself often censored by the very country it had helped to create. Science and poetry were all very well in their place, my head teacher would tell me, but it was a subordinate place and, quote unquote, you could have too much of that kind of thing. The idea of a rights-based secular society, which informed the proclamation and the democratic program, was replaced generally by a narrowly defined ethnic nationalism, notably in the 1937 constitution. The Irish language ceased to feel like a recoverable gift, and to many schoolchildren appeared more in the guise of a threat. I remember all the instructions, the interdictions in school, were always barked out in Irish. It was the language of negation. There might be no word for yes or no, but there was a lot of negation. And religion was re reduced to a set of rules rather than to a version of imaginative possibility. Yeats once wrote in a letter, if we had more real religion in Ireland, we might have less morals. The moral impulse and the religious destroy one another, he said, in the end. I was once, he added, fearful of turning out rational myself. No hope. People, few people really understood what he meant. The study of the catechism of Catholic doctrine and of the intricate grammar of irregularities in the Irish language took up so many hours of the school day. And teachers were encouraged to see themselves as the non-commissioned officers of the official church. So, as Ireland hovered between sovereign status and empire affiliate, it was indeed caught in a posture of waiting for full Republican sovereignty, for social democracy, economic liftoff, even spiritual renewal. In Beckett's play Endgame, 1957, one of the characters asks, do you believe in a life to come only to be told, mine was always that? The line reappeared in Bally Murphy some decades later.
And it would be some decades before the full fruits of independence would be tested again in the 1960s and yet again in the 1990s and tasted, but only then by a lucky minority. Thank you very much. now have some responses to Deakin Kybert's paper. Lilia Doolan has worked as an actor, director and producer in the theatre and in television. She was head of department when The Late Late Show was first broadcast. She's taught film and video and has written Sit Down and Be Counted with Jack Dowling. Some of her admirers think she was the best director general that Orte never had. Nothing like fiction. Ah. Uh, many thanks to the President for his kind invitation to these mysteries. Over 50 years ago, we used to do the politics program seven days, every Monday night on RTE. We were off the air for the summer, and I was on holiday in Camp County, Kerry, when on August the 20th, 1968, the Warsaw Pact countries led by the Soviet Union rolled tanks and troops into Czechoslovakia, into Prague, to end their f gentle freedoms and Dubček's reforms. I remember lying out to get a signal in those starlit nights listening to news on shortwave radio from New York, to the meetings of the United Nations. The Czech plenipotentiary came to plead with his global compatriots to come to their aid. On that crackly radio, his voice was urgent and emotional. And his words were most affecting. I was riveted. I could see those tanks, the horror of the people, the suddenness. It is still an unforgettable moment for me, the shock of war. What would it have been like more than 50 years earlier on radio to hear when the gunboat Helga came up the Liffey to put an end to our declaration of free and independent republic? There was no United Nations to appeal to. Few enough to hear, except by word of mouth, that fearful, poetic, and strangely elated moment. Most people were unaware. There were no moving cameras to follow every awesome moment. James Stevens walked the streets to and from his office, writing about what he saw in his simple, graphic, calm way. Maura Comerford circled the cut-off city enchanted and frustrated. The rising, the risen people. It's an emotional image. I would have been as riveted by the dream of those passionate poets and unexpected soldiers, and as caught up in those later moments of ghastly retribution, the executions. They changed everything. And then the War of Independence, the treaty and its debates. What would it have been like to see the four courts under siege the tragedy of comrade against comrade, and our emerging slightly free state, the amputated north of Ireland, a league of nations reject, few phones, little radio but Morse code, photographers, yes, aplenty, and contending headlines and propaganda. In 1908, Michael Collins, then 18 years old, sat in the London offices of the British Civil Service opposite my father, a boy clerk like him, and two years his junior. 
Michael was already a member of the IRB, the secret Fenian army who rose from the famine and became the brotherhood that finally created what Noel O'Fuelon called our damp little shambles of a democracy. But there was no public medium to help us know the hopes of all those Irish language and literary enthusiasts, the trade unionists and suffragettes, those young military and sports people. What did they have in common? How were we to know? What are their aims? Were their aims compatible? What were everybody's aspirations? The women of the Citizen Army and volunteers, the suffrage movement and the majority of common Amman members had the bad manners to believe in the rhetoric and ideas of the proclamation and in the domestic program. They believed that the Republic would be built on new Irish structured organizations and systems to suit the innate creativity and eccentric idealism of the Irish, different from English bureaucracy maybe, with a more open spirituality based on an earlier, less misogynistic Catholicism and the century-old generation generosity of broad swathes of Irish citizens. But those men who had survived the rising and terms in prison described these womenly bad manners as shrill and unbending. With the existence of a contemporary, media have offered a different view. Maybe I'm foolish to believe that the inclusion of a woman among the plenipotentiaries could have led to a more generally acceptable outcome. What about the involvement of figures like Mary McSweeney in the treaty negotiations? Her intellect and force of character, or the down-to-earth imperiousness of the Countess, might have resisted the bullying of Churchill and Birkenhead and the wiliness of Lloyd George, of Lloyd, yeah, yeah, him. Mary McSweeney's grandnephew, Cahill McSweeney Brewer, spoke about his aunt in a recent documentary. He revealed that she had wanted to go to London for the negotiations, but people like Collins and Griffith rejected her. Too argumentative. It did not take long for women's role in the revolution as messengers, combatants, spies and intelligent officers, dispatch riders, jailbirds, organizers of rallies and protests, hunger strikers, writers, educators, and full-time providers of safe houses to be scrubbed from the record until a new generation of scholars and historians led by the likes of Margaret McCurtain, Margaret Ward, and others began to set the record straight. No mass media at work there to balance the record until after the events. For instance, it was last May when the opportunity first occurred to see and taste the dreams and heartbreak of seven of the seven women survivors of the leaders in the documentary on RTE, Forgotten, Widows of the Irish Revolution. Shay Mary Doyles, the rebel doctor, has kept alive for us the life's work of Kathleen Lynn, great savior of poor children and their penniless mothers. So how in earlier times were those days and aspirations conveyed to citizens? Four years after the end of the Civil War, the independent Irish radio station 2RN went on air. Situated high up in the shoulder of the GPO, it became Radio Erin, within the Department of Posts and Telegraphs, beloved of farmers for weather forecasts, and saving the dry battery for Mihola Hare and the great pictures he made of hurling matches. Dear to those who loved the radio play on a Sunday night, 
the poultry instructor, and the making and mending man. Later, in the early 50s until 1964, Guilin, the inventive Irish language promoters, produced a fortnight newsreel of Irish life, Avark Éireann, by Colm O'Leary and with Jim Mulkerns. They were so popular that the Rank Film Organisation agreed to show the newsreels in all of their cinemas. Guilin was one of those who offered their services to run an Irish television service earlier. They were unsuccessful. The state's belief in the efficacy of the advanced factory idea led to the establishment of Ardmore Studios in 1958 to welcome American films and to promote the Abbey Theatre and Irish actors. It was the brainchild of Emmett Dalton, recovered veteran of the Civil War, Michael Collins's friend. It was less welcome to Irish filmmakers and activists like Louis Marcus and Tiernan McBride, who thought supporting Ireland's own filmmakers should be our first priority. One of the big early films there in 1959 was Shake Hands with the Devil, action film from a 1933 uh, novel by Reardon Connor. It was set in the War of Independence at the start of the Black and Tan era and it ended in the truce. It was an undeniably pro-treaty document showing that the anti-treaty argument was far too unrealistic, far too extreme. No word about any socialist dimension to those days, however. In a sense, that was left to Searsha, freedom with a question mark. George Morrison's monumental tragic sequel to 19, in 1961 to the more hopeful Misha era with Sean majestic music. And then, that same year, 1961, Irish television. Understandably, as with the earlier thinking of Collins and Griffith, and then De Valera and John Charles McQuaid, in 1959, Michael Hilliard was able to declare in Doyle, this television service will not be run by Beelzebub, but by nine responsible people. No irony that the nine responsible people were eight men and one woman, at least better than the Council of State, where there was not a single woman in 1966. You can see the photograph of it in the parlour here. Nevertheless, as in literature, there were enough creative souls to draw attention to the anomalies and corruptions as well as to the marvels of the state. The absolutist position of the religious, political and cultural elites who looked after censorship of films and books, policing and imprisoning of young pregnant women in loveless institutions, and young men in industrial so-called schools, and the villainy of corrupt politicians and businessmen became slowly more obvious to the watching public. Mary Raftery on TV, Marion Finucane, and Katie Hannon on radio, among others, have told the hard truths about our democracy. In general, though, as with the foundation of the state and many matters Irish, television was that strange child of ambiguous creativity, pinioned between national intelligence and national pragmatism, political and commercial forces. Too dangerous to leave broadcasting to the broadcasters. And then came the commemorations. Like Yeats's question, did that play of mine send out certain men the English shot? We might ask the same of Art E's 1966 anniversary programming. John Bowman, here present, records it as somewhat alarming 
that RTE's authority and senior editorial team had decided that the con commemoration was to be shown as a national rather than nationalist rather than a socialist event, and that the approach to programming would be idealistic and emotional rather than interpretative and analytical. There were eight newsreels nightly, one each night, called Insurrection, written by uh, Hugh Leonard. These were reports and reconstructions dramatized of what would have happened each day of the 1916 conflict. These newsreels were balanced by thoughtful interviews with descendants and relatives of the executed signatories and combatants. Most memorable and affecting among these was the remembrance of Nora Connolly O'Brien, James Connolly's daughter. She recalled the night before her father was executed. Her mother and she, as eldest daughter, were called to see him in Dublin Castle. He greeted them and said, well, Lily, I suppose you know what this means. And she said, but your life, James, your beautiful life. And he replied, but wasn't it a full life, and isn't this a good end? It was a moment of real feeling. Without media, these moments and their insights would have been lost to our imaginations. And still later, RTE's great production by Tony Barry of James Plunkett Kelly's Trumpet City did remind people that there had been a Larkin and a Connolly and Irish women and men socialists at war with church and commerce associated with national pretenders. The many strands of Irish life and class were not forever with O'Leary in the grave. So how well have our public media worked in informing, educating and entertaining the mass about the decade of centenaries? I incline to the theory that there is no such thing as the mass. Rather, there are overlapping families of interest and attention, some with a similar intentionality, like all those varied complicated parties <coughs> who strove for Irish liberty. What is undeniable is certain people's propensity to manipulation by elites. Nowadays, the mass, in effect, is a carefully delineated order of groups and subgroups to whom to sell things ideas, wants, aspirations. In the old days, it was the church who generally held <coughs> the cards of totalitarian cultural power. The national illusion today is that these cards are held by government and opposition. The reality, perhaps, is that corporations and their electronic voices and technological uniforms structure everything. The last of the state's public media supports, TG Carr, opened in 1996 a lively and innovative addition to our media. Like every Irish broadcaster, it has engaged with the decade of communication of commemorations. TG Cahar have broadcast programs about Tom Barry, Dan Breen, Ernie O'Malley, films on women's role and directly on the Civil War. An independent film by Jerry O'Callaghan will be shown in December. Maru Inisha Cochi, Coga Searshanu Coga Shechtach Massacre or murder in West Cork, civil war, or sectarian war. RTE's TVs Nationwide has done almost 30 short pieces since 2016, historical reconstructions and remembrances, mostly by the redoubtable Donald Byrne. All commemorative events have been covered live and online by RTE. As for the civil war itself, Neil Jordan's Michael Collins 
concerned itself in large part with the Civil War and the roles of Collins and de Valera within it. He recently said that he believes his treatment of Dev was not fair. Independent documentaries like The Limits of Liberty take on the state's conduct of the ideals of the rising and examine the extent to which we have carried these out, concluding that we haven't yet realized those dreams. In Keepers of the Flame, a full-length feature documentary, there's poignant evidence, evidence from some of the descendants of those thousands overlooked and impoverished by following the Republican vision and their ancestors. But chief among Civil War films that challenge our national sensitivities must be Kevin Lotus, unapologetically socialist, the wind that shakes the barley. In one scene at Mass, the priest thunders the bishop's belief in the virtues of the treaty and its promises of peace against the left-wing obduracy of the anti-treaty attitude. I suppose next you'll want to nationalize the Twelve Apostles. It's good to remember a major challenge, he said, by the way, <laughs> it's good to remember a major challenge to all film and documentary work. It's essentially expensive. It's essentially group work. As a small country, we cannot achieve the total financing for a feature or a documentary. It generally takes four or five or more financial partners. It's tedious, hard work. Nowadays, more and more, the state's application requirements can run to 25 pages of questions. The mania for reams of defense documentation is all pervasive. It takes a major effort to maintain a creative spark. No wonder people under 40 rarely look at television nowadays. Social media, the often hateful shorthand of social encounters, and drama series on other media publishers are the draw. But there is forever, thank God, beyond our silly hierarchies of class and power abuse, the awkwardly independent and charmingly irrepressible Irish spirit for ad hoc arrangements and for difficult truth-telling. Yeats will always remind me of the persistent emotion of civil war at the Tower at Ballylee, of daily life itself, perhaps. We are closed in, and the key is turned on our uncertainty. One of the most compelling civil war memories this year is of Martin McDonagh's moving, hilarious, and brutal Banshees of Elisheeran. The loving eccentricity of character, the rending of friendship, the self-mutilation and tragedy that ensues. In the vast grandeur of our countryside, that kind of remembering is thought-provoking, ethical, and magnanimous. Thank you. And our next speaker is Angela Burke, Professor Emerita of Irish Language Studies at UCD, where she taught for over 30 years. Her research focused on oral tradition and cultural history. She also taught in Britain, America and Japan. Author of numerous books, including Maeve Brennan, Homesick at the New Yorker. And she was among the co-editors of the extra volumes on Irish women writers in the Field Day Anthology of Irish Writing. Ochtrain, uh, Hive Banigin, uh, Hardze, is more than an Oidrigus and Oakhides, I guess my Harvey Boyak and Ochtrain, as a Hide, Tachtensha, I guess a Portsoch, Sibley at all, a shul, the Blingle and Uravli in a niche. Um, 
When that terrible explosion devastated Creasla, County Donegal, last month, people rushed to the scene. They coordinated their practical and personal resources to rescue the injured and to offer comfort. President Higgins cut short his official business in Strasbourg and arrived without delay. He embraced the bereaved and listened. He remained there until the last victim was laid to rest. He attended each funeral. When he spoke in public, he expressed gratitude that people in ever-widening circles across this island and beyond were, as he said, able to reveal their feelings and that their hearts were breaking. He said, being able to take the grief of other people into ourselves it shows a very important aspect of, a, of character, of a person, of a community, and of a people. When I read this in the Irish Times, I was grateful, because for so long in this country, in my lifetime and before, uh, revealing that your heart was breaking was unthinkable, at least in hegemonic middle-class culture. And it made me think of the Ban Huinte, the traditional lamenter of the dead, whom so many visitors described before the Great Famine, uh, and John Singh described early in the 20th century in his book, The Aran Islands, uh, where he attended more than one funeral. To leave a dead person unlamented, people said, in, within this tradition, was to treat their body like the carcass of a cow or a horse, not human. For a man of any standing not to be keened by several women was a disgrace, a stain on a family's reputation. A long, elaborate poem, on the other hand, extemporised over the body from the traditional stock and trade of oral tradition was an honour and something to treasure, something to remember. In fact, most of the texts we possess, including Queen Artie later, the most famous one, were written down long after being composed in performance, uh, transcribed from women uh, who had memorised them, filling any gaps in the wording from their own familiarity with the practice. All keens, all examples of Queenie, that, that is the verbal, the poetry of Queenie, which was missed, of course, by the people who didn't speak Irish. They, all they heard was the howling. But the words, um, all the keens follow the same pattern, but no two are quite alike, and many are unique. Before the Great Famine, all the women in a household might be expected to range themselves around a corpse or above a grave, to lift their arms above their heads and move back and forth, raising what the English called the Irish cry. This was a loud, repeated, drawn-out, oh, hon, oh, or alagon. Uh, these are the sounds the body makes in sobbing and groaning when the worst has happened and words won't come. This theatrical performance seems to have triggered a conditioned reflex as mourners and neighbours gathered in large numbers and each joined in the wailing and weeping. Not every woman could compose the kind of chanted poem we call a queenie, however. The noted Banquinze was a solo artist and a community therapist. She expressed the distress, disorientation, affection and fury that people felt now that life had changed, been changed forever by the loss of this one person. Her voice her active body and loosened hair, the words she chose from a large shared stock that she carried in memory, 
constituted the king, the queen. Traditional phrases and themes offer praise or vituperation, depending on whom they address. They describe grand hospitality, flourishing crops, thoroughbred horses, silver-hilted swords, even if the deceased had no such resources. They use images we might associate with horror films to confront the physical reality of death and decomposition. The performance, like a tragic drama, must have had a huge therapeutic, cathartic effect, allowing people in attendance to, as the president said in Chrysla, to reveal the grief they feel and that their hearts are breaking. A mourner at a wake or funeral might not always feel heartbroken, but everybody, every adult, has, and many children have had experience of grief. And it can be a great consolation if their community can acknowledge that. Better too, perhaps, if the horror movie images appear in the mind's eye while you're in company, when all the attention is on what has been lost and when there are others around to hold you. Traditional keeners didn't just praise the dead. They used their position to call out injustice, dishonesty, abuse, avarice, oppression, which is something that oral poets from the time of Homer have always done. Keeners, on occasion, were hired to publicize political meetings. Their voices carried, people gathered when that voice was heard. During the last three decades in our country, as awful revelations have emerged about the conduct of our institutions and of trusted individuals, artists have taken up the Banquintas toolkit to express grief and anger at some of the atrocities that have come to light and continue to come to light. 30 years ago, Sinead O'Connor called herself a keener when she used her fame to cry out against the physical and sexual abuse of children in church-run institutions and families. And she suffered, as we know, punishment, severe punishment for doing so. In the mid-90s, uh, coming to grips with the 150th anniversary of the Great Famine, Alana O'Kelly used her body, her voice, and her visual art practice. The centenary, of course, had passed in silence. It did come during the emergency. But in the 1990s, government was still inclined to shy away from anything but the purely academic. Some of what O'Kelly produced remained, however, in the Carrick and Shannon workhouse attic, open to the public. Then in 2014, uh, on Nolig uh, that's the 6th of January, Chiara Conway uh, used her powerful musical voice and her performance experience to bring asylum seekers together with local people by candlelight for a public condemnation and lamenting of the direct provision system. Most recently, Chiara Conway has gone back, as Sinead O'Connor did a, for a while, to old songs of grief, in this case from Connemara, reinterpreting them for, her for our times. Her new album is called Queen. It was released on the 30th of March this year, and it includes her rendering of one short Queen from a rare sound recording. And she's recently completed a national tour that began on, in Inesir in the Aran Islands, uh, and finished in the National Concert Hall. Even people with no Irish are learning to sing those songs. Some 
who've spent their lives insisting they don't know any Irish after 13 years of being taught it, like Hungarians with Russian after the Soviet Union fell. Uh, they hated it because it was compulsory. They have disavowed it, but they too are discovering that there may be something in it after all. This year as well, the National Gallery of Ireland has honoured the heroic Catherine Corliss, who was once dismissed as a local historian by purchasing Paul McCormick's 2021 portrait of her in her own kitchen. 30 years ago, Cormac O'Grada drew attention to the, what he called the sanitised and apologetic approach to the famine among Irish-based historians. This is during the, the famine, um, uh, 150th anniversary. He contrasted it with work by scholars in the US. He noted too that, again, I'm quoting him, a leading Dublin academic had derided Robert Key's 1980 TV documentary Famine as, quote, lending sucker to terrorism. I was teaching in some American universities around that time, and I met many Irish Americans. What struck me was the difference in social memory between the people I met in the US uh, and what was familiar to me in Ireland from the people I knew, from spending time in Gaeltacht areas, from reading Gaeltacht autobiographies, and from going through the manuscripts of what's now called the National Folklore Collection in Belfield, UCD. Irish-Americans I met spoke about the potato famine. They spoke about injustice, poverty, mental illness, and alcoholism. In Ireland, however, at that time, the famine was hardly mentioned, and neither was poverty although people donated generously to famine relief in Africa. And I knew next to nothing about our famine. I knew it was called Androchio in the folklore manuscripts, Oscar uh, and sometimes the bad times. Uh, clearly, different stories had been told on one side of the Atlantic and on the other. But what's transmitted and what's suppressed doesn't depend only on which stories people tell. Declan talked about answers to questions that people hadn't been able to ask. Um, but whether a story is transmitted or not, or even told, depends on what people are willing to listen to. It's been obvious here in this country since the 1990s that people had been telling their stories over and over, but they were not being listened to. They weren't being believed. And here, of course, we have mis misogyny at work because so many of the people telling the stories were female or poor or both. Uh, a myth, which is the middle word in the title of my paper, which is uh, memory, myth and history or history. It's written down somewhere. Uh, a myth can be either a story that's completely wrong or it can be a treasured narrative that tells a community how things came to be the way they are. Either way, it occupies a place somewhere between memory and history, and it merits looking at. Since the famine commemorations in the mid-90s, I've come across quite a few statements that, oh, but nobody died here. Though many accounts mentioned a place 10 miles away where things were very bad. And yet, when the folklore graduate Cahal Porter, as a radio producer, went through the, the manuscripts of the National Folklore Collection in search of material to make documentaries for RTE, he found stories of land-grabbing farmers, land agents, and gombeen men who abused and cheated the starving poor, 
and I remember a story about a farming family who fed new milk to their pigs while destitute people starved in their boundary ditches. Carl Porter published books in English and Irish on his research. He wrote an excellent introduction to the, to the English language version, different material in each, uh, 500 individual items in English. He discusses the reluctance of historians to engage with the folklore record as evidence. That may be based on a false premise, he writes, and the premise that the folklore of the found, by dint of its nature as folklore, carries a nationalist inter interpretation of the causes, events, and effects of the calamity. Porter himself, however, found all points of view, from rabid unionist to rabid nationalist, in the uh, archives of, the, the fo the, of folklore. Famine had, of course, been a major issue during the land war that began in 1879, when the west of Ireland was again experiencing hunger and deprivation after hard, wet winters and bad harvests. For strong farmers and shopkeepers in particular, though, and the graziers, of course, the shopkeeper graziers that the president with a colleague has written about, the great hunger was best forgotten. Notwithstanding agrarian outrages in various places, in the second half of the 19th century, this country was recovering, and that class was doing quite well. Contracts for supplying bread or meal or coffins to a workhouse had been lucrative. The English language and the Catholic Church were in the ascendant. Railways were extending across the country, and the new middle-class Catholics were cultivating respectability, a word that has been mentioned here already today. They dressed well, they wore shoes, read newspapers and sometimes even books. They avoided rough speech, they kept a parlour for special occasions, they sent their daughters to convent boarding schools, and in the case of the farmers, we heard that they aspired to have a quote, a bull in the field, a pump in the yard, and a son in Maynooth. They were careful whom their children married. Many of their offspring remained single and left large legacies to the Catholic Church. A great many young women entered convents. Um, if their parents could afford to send a fine piano or equivalent uh, with them as a dowry, they became choir sisters, and Katrina Clear, who earlier contributed to this series, wrote about that. Uh, they became choir sisters if they could afford a dowry, but girls from poorer households could become lay sisters. They did the heavy work. They carried the trays, they did the gardening, they did the laundry, they did the scrubbing of potatoes. In this kind of rural society, the poorer households were those of small farmers and farm labourers. That second group was considered much inferior and uh, its members were badly exploited, I believe, until the 1960s. Most of their children emigrated. The people who could not be spoken of uh, were the cottiers, living in pitiable conditions ever since the potato became established as a subsistence food uh, and then the uh, population of the poor and marginalised uh, exploded. When the potatoes failed, there was no slack in the system. So the Irish-speaking casual labourers and beggars who threw up shelters against ditches for themselves, their children and hens and a pig, if they hadn't already been sold, were the, they were the first people to starve and to die of the various diseases that preyed upon the people who were so weakened. 
Sometimes a landlord or a charitable organisation packed them into ships and emigrated them. Emigrate was a transitive verb at that time. Huge numbers died at sea or just after reaching Quebec. But the land they left meant more for farmers and graziers. Uh, the historian Brandon Maxivne, now of Galway University, has broken one silence with his book, The End of Outrage, carefully tracing the names that disappeared from his own hometown land um, near Ardra, County Donegal, in the 19th century. For the new middle class, especially east of the Shannon, the Queen, the lament for the dead, the loud, dramatic performance became embarrassing, especially east of the Shannon, after the famine. Also embarrassing were bare feet and the Irish language. Good manners required people, especially women, to disavow the body and sexuality and never to give in to strong emotion. By the way, uh, the Queen itself was very frank about the body, uh, especially women's bodies. This is the one place a woman could talk about her body. And the Banquinta often bared her breasts, as well as literally letting her hair down. Alma Curtin was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant from Vermont in New England. She spent months in Carasaveen, County Kerry in 1893 with her Irish-American husband, Jeremiah Curtin, collecting tales and legends to publish in America. A little girl used to visit her from a big farm nearby and bring her honey or butter or potatoes. When Alma asked her about speaking Irish, this child said she didn't like to speak it because it was so common in itself. Now, my father's father was born on a farm like that in County Kilkenny. And a woman called Una Bulger, who became the mother of the New Yorker writer Maeve Brennan, came from another such very comfortable farm in County Wexford. Both of these young people got married early in the 20th century, neither of them to the kind of person their parents might have selected. Robert Brennan's mother kept a small shop in Wexford town. His father had been a pig dealer. He became a journalist and met Una Bulger in nationalist circles. Bicycles had a lot to answer for. Both took part in the rising in Enniscorthy and Bob spent much of the next two years, during which Maeve was born, in various jails. Early in 1918, when Sinn Féin wanted to set up a propaganda department in anticipation of an end to the Great War and an election, De Valera invited him to be its director at £3 a week. The Brennans moved to Dublin with their two young daughters and rented a house on Belgrave Road from Plunkett, where they lived next door to Dr Kathleen Lynn. Their third daughter, Deirdre, known as Derry, was born that October at the height of the flu epidemic. And three years later, while the treaty plenipotentiaries were in London, the Brennans bought a small house in Renala. Maeve Brennan turned five on the 6th of January 1922, the day before the treaty was ratified. And her father went on the run, and by no means for the first time. Twelve years later, when de Valera sent Bob Brennan to Washington as secretary to the Irish uh, 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 mission there, the, the Irish... Uh, can't remember. The whole family went along as well. They followed him there. Maeve, was seven, Maeve Brennan was 17. Uh, almost 20 years later, on the 24th of October 1953, the New Yorker magazine published uh, a story called The Day We Got Our Own Back by Maeve Brennan. It's deceptively brief and simple, as though told by a five-year-old, though no child could possibly have written it. 
Its action begins soon after that fifth birthday. Una Brandon is alone with her two younger daughters in their new house in Renla when a Free State search party arrives. Derry is upstairs, sick in bed. Downstairs, one man tries to get Maeve to say where her father is until her mother, a tiny, quiet woman, flies at him. When the men left, Maeve Brennan writes, she was, a quote, spellbound with gratitude, excitement and astonishment that the strange man had included me. But the story isn't over, and a second raid, a year later, raises it into three dimensions, like a house constructed inside a bottle, or pulled upright, allowing many points of view. This second raid, when the Free State soldiers wrecked the house, illustrates what Declan told us about men addicted to fighting. And also the observation he quoted from Hannah Shee Skeffington about the usual soldiers' contempt for civilians, particularly women, though these had often risked their lives to help him. One of the men got his comeuppance, however, when he tried to look up the chimney and brought down a load of soot on himself and on the carpet. Una Brennan, usually portrayed in her daughter's work as timid, anxious, house-proud, laughed as though her heart would break. I could say a lot more about Maeve Brennan and the story she set in that house with their silences and the powerful, unspoken feelings of her characters, but I've done that elsewhere. Maeve Brennan died in 1993 in a nursing home in Long Island where the New Yorker apparently had placed her after she became a danger to herself. She exemplified the silence, emotional breakdown and exile that Declan identified among the massive effects of the Civil War. Neither she nor her sister Derry could abide de Valera after all he had inflicted on their family. Gormila Mahagwe. Fergal Keane has covered conflict for the BBC for more than 30 years, including the Rwandan genocide, wars in the Lebanon, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Ukraine. He's also written award-winning books, including Wounds, winner of the Ewart Biggs Memorial Prize. He's been awarded an OBE for services to television journalism. His latest book is The Madness, a memoir of war, fear, and PTSD, which has just been published. Uh, when I was asked to speak of trauma and of heeding and healing the wounds of war, I was extremely grateful. Very, very happy that this topic was suggested to me. For reasons that will become apparent uh, during my address, but principally because I am not convinced that the danger of war, of conflict, of violent conflict on this island is over. I think we can look to the lessons of previous centuries when we had long periods of what appeared to be peace, but which were suddenly and violently interrupted and took us in dramatic directions and into ultimately the period of the War of Independence and then the Civil War. My words today are the consequence of witness. They come from what I've seen and what I've heard. The long conversations with the survivors of violence, but also with perpetrators. Traumatic memory isn't confined just to those on whom violence was inflicted. 
I've spent much of my life away at the wars, most frequently civil wars, the scenes of genocide, ethnic cleansing, man-made starvation. I've gone into the noise and fury of battle and afterwards into the anguished and often complex silences. I've tried to explore the essential fictions that men and women construct to protect their minds from the consequences of the violence they have suffered or which they have inflicted. And I've come sadly to the conclusion that there's nothing, no cruelty, no indignity, that we as human beings are not capable of inflicting on each other. But I'm also convinced, and convinced by examples on this island of ours, that humanity pushed into extremists is also capable of immense generosity, of that which might help bind wounds and lay foundations that help us to move away from the possibility, and that's all I say that it is, possibility, of a return to violence. To heal the wounds of war, we must heed the pain of others. And we must do it especially when they belong to what are described in divided societies, people who belong to the other side. We must above all look on the atrocities of the past, whoever carried them out with clear eyes. To heed is to see things as they actually were. The body parts shoveled from the ground after the IRA bombs on Bloody Friday. The mutilated remains of the victims of the loyalist Shankill butchers found in Belfast alleyways. The dying man bleeding out from a paratrooper's bullet on Bloody Sunday. To heal, having heeded, is to acknowledge and be respectful towards the pain of others as well as our own. As a consequence, I'm impatient with keyboard warriors, barroom balladeers, and the manipulative liars of social media. And I fear the ease, the growing ease, with which people can construct narratives that deny the true nature of killing. What am I qualified to talk to you about? I'm not an academic historian, but I can tell you about killing. I can tell you about the question that has vexed me all of my adult life, is why do we kill? What does it do to us? And how do we recover from it? So it's a personal reflection today. I don't speak on behalf of anyone. And my experience of reporting on atrocity has taught me not to believe that anything I can say will make much, if any, difference to the course of violent events. I vividly remember coming out of Rwanda after the genocide and producing the first documentary on that horrific slaughter, 800,000 people murdered in 100 days, and broadcasting it and somehow thinking that the public would be gripped by what we were revealing, the worst genocide since the Nazis. And it was met with indifference. I don't blame people for that. That is, to use the, uh, the phrase I've heard often in our line of work, it is how it is. And I'm conscious, too, of what attaches to that, a sense of what is now called moral injury. In my own case, a fear that held me paralyzed in Rwanda in 1994, the wish to intervene but to be too terrified for one's own safety to take that risk. 
I can speak to you now, at some distance in time, from the wars I have witnessed. Yet they live with me in everyday trauma, in vivid detail. I think of Brian Friel's great line from Translations, to remember everything is a form of madness. So I don't write or report or speak because I think I can draw people back from the brink or remotely imagine that the words of a reporter will pierce the mental armor of those who have spent years, decades, rationalizing to themselves the necessity of killing. I'm here because I believe that witness has rights of its own, that what I report can join with the voices of others who try to stand outside the clamor of conflict and offer true stories that might, just might, become part of a larger institutional memory, something that can sit alongside the work, support, augment, inform the work of the professional historians. And I'm here because of the President's generous invitation, because I believe this series of conversations, while rooted in the past, can inspire a dialogue about the present, which has as its hallmarks generosity, compassion, and above all, honesty. And these values, heeded in the heart and mind, might shape an Ireland in which we can talk of healing. Now, I shouldn't have needed a psychiatrist to tell me that family history and the history of this island where I grew up were part of what sent me to explore the trauma of others. But when he did, I was immensely relieved. There was no medication for it, he said, but this is what's wrong with you. Because until then, I'd wondered whether my relentless returning to the scenes of violence was not in some way perverse, or as one well-meaning older relative asked me once, what do you want going into all that old stuff for? It's a good question for today. The reason I go into the old stuff, and whether that's the stuff of the 1920s or of the 1970s or 80s, is because I cannot shed its influence. It's there in the memory of the stories I heard growing up and the troubles I myself reported. And it's central to the shaping of this island now. Now, I was not the first member of my family to experience the terror of war. My grandmother, Hannah Purtle, was 15 when the Irish Revolution began. By the time the fighting stopped, seven years later, I believe she'd been changed by what she'd witnessed and participated in on country lanes and on the streets of Listowel. War in North Kerry was the broken corpses of comrades after torture, the blood of a policeman congealing in a gutter, the revolver pointed towards her head in a threat of execution, and night after night waiting for a battering on the door. As a member of Commandamon, my grandmother spied and smuggled messages and weapons. Heading into the winter of 1920-21, an atmosphere of terror envelops North Kerry. The guerrillas attack a police patrol. A village is raided and burned in retaliation. Prisoners are tied to the front of lorries as human shields to forestall ambush. Others are dragged behind vehicles along country roads. One near Tralee is tied to a horse and dragged across the countryside. Savage beatings are routine. 
Many in the ranks of the newly arrived Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries are men already brutalised by years of horror on the Western Front. And here's a family story. Growing up, I heard of a man called Darcy, who my father assured me was a classic Black and Tan, the sweepings of an English jail. Darcy gave a death threat to my grandmother, physically pointed his weapon at her and then went to her employer and said she would be killed if she didn't leave Listow. And so there he sat, this brutal Englishman who had tried to kill my grandmother. But with the help of Professor Linda Connolly, who's here today, I was able to track the real Darcy. And who was Darcy? He was a teenage boy from Donegal who signed up with the British Army, who was then, even though he was underage, 16, I believe, he was then put into what they call one of the special brigades. And these were the people responsible for firing gas and flamethrowers at the Germans. And so he was in the heart of the horror of the Western Front. When after the Somme they decided to return the so-called teenage Tommies and send them back, Darcy was demobilised. He was too young and was sent back. And then war started in Ireland, and this traumatised young man found a new home for his neurosis, and that was on the streets of North Kerry. And so he became a man hated locally, so hated that my grandmother was put on a, an assassination detail to track him. But his true story was that of a, a poor Catholic from Donegal, who'd found the only work he could and been traumatised by it. And in that I see the, to Larkin's phrase, the way man hands on misery to man and how trauma enveloped Darcy and but also my grandmother who for years afterwards suffered depression. Part of it at least, the consequence of her experiences. In Listowel, people were fingered by IRA intelligence as spies abducted and shot dead their bodies left on the roadside, with signs proclaiming, spies beware of the IRA. The IRA shoots District Inspector Tobias O'Sullivan of the RIC. He is a father of three young children. He lives a few minutes up the street from the Keane family home on Church Street, where my grandmother would go to visit her future in-laws. His wife, May, sees the blood flowing from his ruined head. She dies soon after he does, broken by grief. O'Sullivan's movements to and from the police barracks on Church Street have been tracked by spies. As one of his assassins remarks, we had been informed of his regular movements by a number of scouts in Lestole who put us on his trail as soon as the order was received. It was as simple and irrevocable as that. Four local IRA men walking along the road outside Listowel are picked up by the Tans, badly beaten and then lined up before a firing squad and shot. Despite being wounded, one runs for his life and survives to tell the tale. My grandmother Hannah is among the group of women detailed with making sure the dead are given a decent burial in accordance with the rites of the church and the customs of the country. One common among member who sees the arrival of the bodies at Tralee Barracks recalls that the face of one, a fine young fellow whom I knew personally, was all smashed in. 
The women tending the bodies are verbally abused and some are beaten. They find the dead dumped in a shed used by the police for storing turf. They wash and clean them. Now, how easy is it to write that? They wash and clean them. And then you imagine these country women painstakingly cleaning away the blood and gore and how that imprints on the mind and the spirit. When a retired local policeman, James Kane, is killed by the IRA as a suspected informer, his family is boycotted. They are refused service in shops and forced to walk long distances because nobody will give them a lift. They live among people who wish to erase their presence as the life of their father had been erased. In the British National Archives, I read the letters of Cain's traumatised children and see the hatred that engulfed some in our town. His daughter Elizabeth was like my grandmother, a draper's assistant in Listole. But after his murder, the staff refused to work with her, despite, as the employer says, her having been an employee for 15 years. She couldn't find another job. Elizabeth herself wrote, After our father's death, people whom we looked on as our friends turned their back on us. And at one particular social entertainment, the first I attended in the town after his death, I was the only girl ignored. A younger sister had a nervous breakdown and became, in Elizabeth's word, a complete wreck. The adult ch children became destitute and were evicted from their home in Listowel. Eventually, they scattered, vanished. They were erased from the story of the town. When Elizabeth's lawyers wrote to a local solicitor to try and gather information in support of her claim for compensation, they were told, and I quote, there is a great reluctance to admit to having taken part in a boycott of this kind or on the part of anybody to give evidence against their neighbours. All parties in Ireland are anxious to forget the troubles of the years 1921-22 and banish them as a hideous nightmare. But in the minds of the traumatised, there is no banishing, not then, not now. Down the generations it goes. And I think of Tobias O'Sullivan, whose killing was one of the most infamous in the Revolutionary War in Kerry. When I asked a relative of his why their experience of war had not been written into the national narrative, I was told. And these are some of the most poignant words I've ever heard in war. She replied, because nobody ever asked. Last year, I sat with the son of Jack Ahern, one of Tobias's assassins. And when I asked about his father, Sean Ahern's eyes fill with tears. He struggles to accept that his kind, warm-hearted, hard-working father could have killed in cold blood. He said to me, I mean, how could you live with that? To walk up behind a man and shoot him in the back of the head in front of his wife and child. And there it was trauma breathing, the 75-year-old son of a long-dead gunman carrying the trauma of what his father had done a hundred years before. In my grandmother's house, Tobias O'Sullivan became a ghost story told by my father, a green figure, nameless, who stalked the house after dark. Trauma present yet unreal, mediated through storytelling, 
I was told that he was a dead British soldier, not an Irishman, the truth. I was told he would wander forever. I was told not that he was gunned down by men who were comrades and arms and friends of my people. This just wasn't told, could not be told at that time. There was too much to my child's inquiring mind that was unknown. My early knowledge of the revolutionary period was shaped by my father's storytellers. He was a great storyteller. And by what I heard in that Lestole kitchen, he was also one of life's romantics. When he was picked to play the role of a hero of the 1798 rebellion in the RTE film When Do You Die, Friend, his performance won a Jacobs Award. That was in 1966, 50 years after the revolution and three years before the war erupted in the north and our commemorations could never be so simple again. Never so simple, so lacking in nuance, so embedded in the narratives of origin constructed in the exhausted aftermath of the civil war. For those who were the families of the dead of our revolution, on all sides, there was no healing space because the war of independence gave way to the civil war. And that in turn led to the horrifying realization of the savagery we were capable of inflicting on each other without any help from the British, even if they did supply the guns that launched the civil war at the four courts. Our remembering, therefore, was not an exchange between survivors and descendants, an openness, although in fairness, I can think of very few countries in the wake of conflict where that has been the case. We need to look at nations as they struggle or don't struggle with their legacies of empire from Britain to France to realize just how widespread is this condition of, of a kind of qualified amnesia, of a creation of histories that allow us to live with the horrors of the past. It wasn't until years later when I found myself at the scene of shootings, bombings, assassinations, funerals, that the real meaning of violence, the human dimension in all its blood, its body parts, its tears, its empty stares, came home to me. There in Belfast, Lurgan, Derry, and in small towns and villages, and again in Rwanda, Iraq, Algeria, Lebanon, Colombia, Congo, and so many more, my, and it is a word I don't like using, but I do use it in relation to this, my hatred of war hardened, my loathing of militarism. But I also saw in South Africa and in smaller localized initiatives in the Balkans and the Middle East, attempts to heal through the processes of truth-telling. I'm a firm believer in the power of communities addressing what Seamus Heaney called the tragedy of neighborly murder through mediated exchanges, through the respect shown by listening. I'm particularly concerned today with the role of leaders. My experience has convinced me that for leaders to confront the trauma of the past, they must speak with generosity, particularly those on whatever side, and I stress whatever side, who represent those who bear responsibility for past violence. The greatest, most transformative leadership involves humility. It means setting to side, one side 
justifications, blaming, politicking, whataboutery. It means speaking directly to the pain of those who still live with the trauma of the murdered father, brother, sister, son and daughter. Acknowledge the pain caused. See it from the side of those still struggling with the legacy of violence. It means we must pay full attention to the potential for pain caused by words, gestures, slogans, chants. This is a universal responsibility for political leaders, as is the imperative of creating mechanisms that honestly address the actions of all those, out of uniform or in uniform, who took part in violence. We cannot have a partitioning of concern for victims according to our partisan loyalties. On this island, leaders need to heed the pain of families of Bloody Sunday, Bloody Friday, Warrington, Lochan Island, Enniskillen, and so many more places. We can then talk about learning from the lessons of the past. Or to paraphrase the words of Van Morrison, believe that the healing has begun. Thank you. Fergal Keane. Now, before opening a general debate with the audience, I now invite President Higgins for his reflections on Declan Kybird's paper. What valuable papers we have had, Puikas on Cree. It is to be so welcomed that during the period of our Magnus 100 seminars, so much new work has been published on the period of the War of Independence, the Civil War, and the early years of the establishment of the Free State that would become decades later be declared the Irish Republic. Among such is Ireland 22, edited by Dara Gannon and Fergal McGarry, published by the Royal Irish Academy. The 50 pieces from 50 contributors on 50 chosen themes of 1922 are an attractive invitation to reading below the surface of what was a most important but horrific year. 1922. The Irish Labour History Society, Seeking No Honours, and Tom Johnson, published by Trade Union Forza, is also essential for an understanding of the period, as is Colm Kenny's work on Arthur Griffith. Both Tom Johnson and Arthur Griffith have been drawn out of neglect by such recent work. 1922 to 1925 is a defining period in much more than constitutional terms. It is a period in which the rawness of division has exacted great hurt, a hurt that perhaps should be acknowledged before any attempts at narratives of state formation success are presented as singular accounts. When Basil Jobb wrote many years ago of Ireland a successful democracy, he was right, but the judgment was of an institutional success. The period is significantly lessened, of course, in terms of non-violent possibilities by the absence of the idealistic or pragmatic leaders of the previous decade, such as Arthur Griffith, Michael Collins, or earlier again, James Connolly. This is shown in how events fell out, events that were sometimes calculated more often spontaneous are uncontrolled. In terms of interpretation of events, 
This creates a complexity that cannot but be dealt with by a diversity of narratives and at several different levels. Neither is working the relationship of memory to history any single challenge. Layers of memory wrestle with each other and from differing perspectives it is an unending struggle producing tentative but temporary conclusions. In contemporary times, those of us exercising imagination to recover the period must seek to begin with the fullest bag of pencils we may have to draw some semblance of what life was like in the struggle to come from under the blanket of empire. A smothering that had in its time sought its implementation by the forbidding of most rights to freedom of belief, of speech to in one of the oldest languages. It had involved dispossession, debasement, all based on the assumption that those who were seeking freedom constituted a dangerous threat, that they were a lesser backward, untrustworthy people that could at best be but possessors of a quaint but still dangerous disposition. Generation after generation of our ancestors lived through a complex set of exclusions and humiliations that should serve as a qualification of any contemporary hubris. It is not the case that our ancestors were passive in any simple Gramscian sense, that they did not know what the sources of exclusion or repression were. It is not any false consciousness that restrained them. Something very real, important for the future, was being stored. It is a suppressed experience of hurt, that based on humiliation, of being regarded as lesser. It is one that is transmitted through the generations. The hurt, such as is inflicted, is not cast aside, forgotten, but imbued with anger, takes on a shape in silence that enables it to be available for its catalytic release when opportunity presents. James C. Scott has described such so well in his Domination of the Arts of Resistance, using literary materials as well as ethnographic research. It is a great challenge, beyond the task of inclusive integrating of acts of memory, the accepting of distance from what was painful, and seeking to do so with a rejection of any false palliative amnesia, recognizing that our task is to live ethically in the present, create futures with possibilities. There will be no doubt some who might suggest that creating pictures of the past to accommodate the present should appeal, but such will not suffice for any adequate response to preparation for the present or future. The acknowledgement of the role of myth is of an entirely different order. By 1922, the Irish people were a wounded people. They had suffered the First World War, both in terms of participation and in resistance to conscription terms. Many had died in the Great Flu, an election that had released great energy and desire for change that, had its result been accepted, would have made a war of independence and an ensuing civil war unnecessary. The obduracy of imperial pressure, however, would require that the opportunities for peace be thrown aside, and such tragic folly 
would be repeated during the Civil War. The year 1922 and its events are ones, of course, of heroic commitment to their tasks in the most difficult circumstances on the part of many. But it is a year which is marked so deeply, not just by the failure of diplomacy, as indeed we are in our current times, but by the reliance on such a coercive force of unscrupulous practices, such as would prevent any peaceful departure from the gripping fingers of empire. Empires in so many settings have shown that they would also, that this would also be the experience of others of the colonized. Security of tenancy holding had given way to security of ownership, to hell with home rule, it's the land we're after, George Birmingham had been told in his day in the late 19th century in Mayo. And there is a violence that comes from land hunger. It is impossible to understand the events of 1922 and the year that followed, 1923, without recognising the importance of the land issue. The 1923 Land Act that was coming would offer reward to some, give an opening opportunity to some conscious, but would, in its allocations too, exclude not just those regarded as still dangerous in 1923, irregulars, many of whom would remain incarcerated until 1924, even though the armed surrender had been on May the 24th, 1923, but exclusion would include two, those who were calculated as being on the wrong side. In my paper for Morton of Five, I drew on Eleni Kalinon's work on the prison diary of Joseph Campbell as a source for reflection on what those incarcerated were discussing between May 24, 1923 and the time of their release. They had lost, would not get their jobs back, would not be getting land, and the ban on emigration to the United States by De Valera would not be lifted until July 1925. I have a personal connection to the period. My father, uncles and aunts were activists in the War of Independence, but my father and uncle were on opposite sides in the Civil War. My uncle was in the National Army in Rinmoin Galway, my father in Hut 3 in the Curra internment camp. Later applying for a small pension, my father wrote to the pensions board, I was in employment as a grocer's assistant at a salary of £130 per year, plus £50 for travelling. After my release from the internment camp, a deputation from the trades, he mentions his previous employer's name, and they asked for me to be taken back in his employment. He refused to do so, with the result that I was idle until the 1st of August 1924, when I got a position as a junior assistant from Michael Nolan, Air Street, Newbridge, at a salary of £50 per year indoor. At the time, very few people would employ an ex interne what I have quoted was the signed statement of my father, John Higgins, dated 18th of April 1935, in support of his application, which he, like so many others, would repeat over the years for a small military service pension. The pension files contained in the National Archives record record their long and exhausting battle for that small pension, which in my father's case was eventually granted in 1956, almost 22 years 
after his first application and just eight years before his death in December 1964. Such was the bitter reality for many of the non-landed, the internees who were now unemployed, and for men perceived by many as unemployable. Their previous comrades in the newly emerging Irish state were now estranged from them. A state was coming into being, one of which it will quickly become clear that it was modelling its administration practices, not in any Michael Collins type of administrative radicalism, but on a mimesis of what might be the excellences of imperial practice. Ireland's ongoing decorative commemorations and our six Mocknuff 100 seminars have sought and it is welcome to focus attention not only then on the political and constitutional context of the events of 1912-1923, but also on the wider experience of war, conflict, the Great Flu, and the horrific political violence associated with land security and land hunger within Irish society. And not only that violence which was being imitated or reciprocated, but new forms of violence, including gendered violence. The period carries so many examples of cruel punishments as well as killings. The broadening of scholarly perspectives beyond constitutional and military history has greatly enhanced, I suggest, our understanding of how conflict and war is, is experienced and registered as a cultural, social and emotional phenomenon within Ireland's recent past, as Guy Beiner's work has shown. Among what remains to be given adequate space in the historical accounts are the efforts of those who sought peace, be it Archbishop Clune and the War of Independence, the Trade Union Movement, the Labour Party, the People's Rights Association in Cork. However, the security of land, its promise, the urge to acquire more, something far beyond sufficiency, is the dominant feature in the background. There is a privileging in the period, of the achievement of order, of a necessary coercive authority. It was one which would lead to state executions in response to assassinations. This would in time have the outcome of a state with strong authoritarian tendency and practice, one that would cede control in key areas of policy and life to an authoritarian version of the church. Of those who put parliamentary process and peace first, contemporary writing is sparse. One could not but have been moved when one read of a visit by young Jim Larkin and Barry Desmond to Tom and Mary Johnson. Tom, a peace pursuer and foundational parliamentarian, then retired. He was found living in straitened circumstances, no pension, broken TV set, struggling to heat his home. This was the fate that befell the leader of the opposition in the Parliament of 1922. The objective of achieving and maintaining a respectability, one sustained by having property as a launching pad, was paramount. Respectability of the name, of the immediate family, an essential aspect of the decision indeed as to whether you were being really called for the diocese. The Christian brothers, to a large extent, were left to look after the missions. For so many people in the 1920s, in diverse circumstances, 
and in overt and covert ways, loss of dignity and humiliation were being experienced, be it those who were, as I've said, incarcerated, such as others had in the past in national memory, being enduringly symbolised in Joan Mitchell's iconic jail journal, one of the most widely read books of its time. Such loss of dignity could have results that were near irreparable and were transferable. It was not solely individuals who were affected. Loss of health, the consequences of life with flying columns, sleeping in dugouts, all had consequences that families were left to carry. Not all nationalists, of course, had the response James C. Scott describes of a stored response for future delivery in opportunity. Responses to authoritarianism, old and new, could take different forms. Interestingly, it was in their direct response to such breaches that was the distinctive feature of Fenianism within nationalism. It was said that Fenians could be identified by their, quote, readiness to meet the eye of the priest, landlord, policeman or grazier. Fenians prided themselves on their self-respect and refusal to conform to traditional deference. Fenians were anti-aristocratic Democrats who had forged links with English radicalism and harboured notions of just reforms, particularly agrarian. However, overall, any egalitarian tendency was a weak light within the general nationalist movement. In the prosecution of the fruits of its struggle, nationalism, as is found in so many cases of formal independence being granted, would in the administrative procedures, imperceptibly at times, take on empire's assumptions, replacing the previous colonial authority with a new but similar version, one that bore authoritarian tendencies, for example, in notions of what constituted the deserving. <clears throat> While it is true that in many settings the cold influence of empire's administrative practice was indeed in decline, the absence of equality as any driving force of an alternative would give rise to a retained emphasis on status, respectability, and in terms of religion, one that offered not a spirituality, but rather a requir was required a piety in the service of docility and a further gendered inferiority. The pensions applications process, to which those who had made the sacrifices that achieved independence were applying, was an insensitive rejection of such people, many of whom were sinking into poverty and in health as were their families. It was in terms of bureaucratic oppression, one that was deeply humiliating, with requirements that were impossible to meet being inflicted on applicants, all done in an official Chekhovian form of communication and judgmentalism. For example, interviews in Garda barracks for an evaluation that suggested inferiority, something that can only be counted as a callous response to poverty in most cases. Neither policy nor practice constituted a normative behaviour that had either egalitarianism or the necessary dignity of equal citizenship at its centre. The values seen as necessary for the sustenance of status, respectability, repression, docility, were assumed to be ones quite likely to be beyond that at the attainment of the lesser property. Economic weakness was seen as a, a corollary of moral weakness. 
class. The 1920s were the foundation for a dreadful decade of the 1930s, a decade of repression, bigotry, inculcated fear, and for many, flight, if one could. Just as nature abhors a vacuum, the vacant spaces in the emerging island were moved into by the church. By the 1930s, the New Ireland is one in which perhaps vocationalism at best might be tolerated, seen as a mild, legitimate, safe, and an alternative to any dismantling of class or property-based order that might be advocated, discussed, or allowed. It was one which might even fit within the authoritarianism of some bishops. An anti-intellectualism was rampant, particularly in the church and its institutional presence. North-South exchanges descended into being competing excesses of sectarianism. They were often brutal and offensive, reinforcing divisions, toxicity, and any acceptable notions of the other. There were winners and losers then of the Civil War. They, in their differing circumstances, would form the basis of the new social strata. The losers found it hard to get regular work in their old trades, or indeed, as Declan has said, communion at some altar rails. The professions, on the other hand, were being repeopled by families that would go on to create dynasties and, in cultural terms, embrace modernity, as they saw it. There was an oppositional intelligence, of course, stirring. Writers such as George Russell, Sean O'Fallon, Sean O'Casey, Dennis Johnson, Samuel Beckett and Flann O'Brien all provided a counter-narrative. Institutions, too, such as the Gay Theatre, became the centre for performance of subversive writing. However, literature, as Declan Kybert has noted, which had helped in Vint Island, now found itself often censored by the very country it helped to create. The Censorship Act, of, the Censorship of Films Act 1923 was an early arrival. Under the Censorship of Films Act, a censorship film certificate could be denied for public exhibition if it was deemed to be indecent, obscene, or blasphemous, or contrary to public morality. Under this regime, more than 2,500 films were banned. And over 11,000 films were cut by film censors between the 1920s and the 1980s. The first film censor, James Montgomery, declared that he acted as a moral sieve and used the Ten Commandments as his guide. Then, too, the moral attitudes of the Committee on Evil Literature, 1926, permeated the first Censorship of Publications Act, 1929. Sexuality, reproduction, and matters in relation to the corporal, all were of the greatest concern to the Irish censors, and censorship enshrined an ideology that was deeply suspicious of the uncovered body, sight of flesh, expressions of human sexuality, and beauty. Censorship, as Peter Martin has noted, had its moral entrepreneurs, who, with an energy they suggested they had drawn from divine sources, went from creating moral panics to legislative victories over any expression of sensibility or, heaven save us, anything sexual. The first organised campaigns began in 1911 in Limerick and swiftly spread to Dublin and then around the country. Campaigners were mostly Catholic, members of confraternities, vigilance associations, and other groups of laymen and priests. They received support from the hierarchy. 
but their passion came from their own values, which blended piety with middle-class puritanism that would have been familiar to their British or Unionist equivalents. Censorship was too part of, of a, a wider exclusionary manifesto in the new state, one that focused its energies on differentiating Irishness from Britishness. When it was discovered, for example, that the incoming Mayo County Library, Letitia Dunlop was a Protestant whose alma mater was Trinity College, the controversy result in her position becoming untenable. A Protestant pushing a book into a Catholic child's hands. While cinema was considered suspect, crossroads dancing, seen initially as a far healthier pastime, and was promoted, yet by 1934 it too would have to go, requiring a clerically controlled alternative, the Dance Halls Act. The strict segregation of the sexes was, of course, a remarkable feature of the Irish countryside of the time, as was being noted by several visiting anthropologists and journalists. Those who could no longer, for whatever reason, remain in the repressive environment of 1920s and 30s and that opportunity, emigrated, mostly to England, and were termed lost souls in some of the editorials of the Irish daily newspapers. It was the legislative atmosphere of the 1920s that laid the foundations for all of the extremism of the 1930s, which would become a decade of misery, exclusion, and subjugation for so many. As we reflect back on the early years of the new state, we should consider, too, the price we have all paid for an unethical memory. If memory is both the recall of a historical experience and carries also the accrual of layers of meaning through which the events have been repeatedly reconstructed, these layers of memory were to be left orphaned for so many decades in the newly independent Ireland, resulting in so much lost opportunity. Thankfully, there now is a rich scholarship, but we should never forget those who had to plough what was the lonely furrow. As we look to the future, I believe it is one in which we can muster hope for the citizens of this country. The search for an identification of a common ground built on a shared humanity, is our best hope. A reflection has been made. Now the work is handed over, and all are welcome to come aboard. The process of ethical recall, with which we have been engaged through these six seminars of Machnab 100 over the past two years, the reflection we have made, as well as other commemorative events, can aid us all, I believe, in this our shared journey together, towards an emancipatory future, one that is marked by inclusivity, diversity, possibility, and a sharing of memory and conditions of peace in a diverse republic of which we can all be proud, be always open to revise and change make better. Mele Buikas is Barbana. Well, so much, so much to consider here now. We're going to the audience, and can I ask people if they are making a contribution or asking a question to also uh, to, to stand if they if they could, the better for the cameras to catch them. So, we have first compliment, first contribution here. It's just a couple of points that are based on things that Fergal Keane said. One is uh, qualified amnesia, and the other is generosity. Uh, and his comment about the danger of 
renewed conflict on this island. Mm. Uh, if we go back to 1922, the British government issued a general amnesty for the War of Independence. If we go back to 1924, the free state government gave a general amnesty for the Civil War. That framed the context in which any further debate could take place. We come forward to 1998, um, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement did not include an amnesty. And what we've seen in recent years, not immediately, but very soon afterwards, was the war being fought out again in the courts. Now, I'm old enough, as many people here are, to remember those days. And I can tell you that some of the court reports I've heard and some of the inquests I've heard bear no resemblance to what I can remember of those events I was, which I witnessed. Uh, and we need to find a new way of doing it. And a few of us uh, from various backgrounds are trying to do that. And Patrick Yates, you're involved in this yourself. So what's, what's your initiative and what's, what do you it, propose? It's a, it's a truth recovery process. What we're saying is conditional amnesties, not as the British are proposing, but conditional amnesties under judicial oversight by both governments in, in, in the terms of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, where people can give information in return for immunity, provided it's done in good faith and accurately, and it's based on mediation, not on courtrooms. Um, I, I just finish very quickly with this. In the Bally Murphy inquest, I gave evidence. And I, I'm not going to talk about my evidence, uh, but it was highly contested, both by a barrister for the relatives and a barrister for the British government. Um, and that didn't bother me. What bothered me was that other people who said they would give evidence changed their minds when they saw what happened with me in the court. Because a court is a battleground. They, they're not using battle axes or swords, but it's still trial by combat. And we have to get away from that. And as Fergal Keane has said, and Wilhelm Verbort has said recently as well, we need generosity in having this discussion. We need honesty. And we're not getting either. Thanks. Okay. Yes. Kenny. Thank you very much. We've heard some wonderful contributions and I just want to comment briefly on two points. One about the use of the word republic and the other about Arthur Griffith and women. In relation to this business about Irish not having the word republic in it, it was Lloyd George who used it with his cabinet secretary when they spoke Welsh together to have a go at De Valera, a little jibe when Jeff went over in July 1921 to arrange the treaty talks. I really think it's a linguistic uh, point rather than a political point. The Irish knew what they wanted and it was a republic. It was something that would belong to the public, to the people of Ireland democratically in a way that Ireland did not belong and that's what really mattered. Nobody wanted that more than Arthur Griffith. He established Sinn Féin. He was driven by emigration. He constantly went on about the damage that emigration was doing and he sought economic welfare for his people, and I think that's what most people in Ireland wanted, the independence for economic welfare, and they got that in 1922. The minority didn't like it, and they resisted it. As regards Dr. Doolan's point about, I think it was, she suggested that people like Collins and Griffith, I think were your words, uh, resisted the appointment at least of one woman. I'm not sure what the evidence for that is um, myself, because Griffith was quite sympathetic uh, two women he had, after all, worked hand in glove with Maud Gone for a number of years uh, to establish uh, resistance to the Boer War and other nationalist objectives. He had resisted the exclusion of 
women from nationalist cultural organizations such as the Celtic Literary Society when others did not. And he had given women like Maureen e. Killeen a platform in his wonderful paper, The United Irishman, which has not been read enough. It's now digitized. Fortunately, Joyce, James Joyce called it the only paper in Dublin worth reading. And it explains you know, the, the breadth of Griffith's um, vision at that time. Um, he has fallen vic victim to some extent to the myth that was created of the revolution. Um, uh, and I think that myth needs to be interrogated. And I think some of our speakers here have done that. And I think it's wonderful when the president mentions Tom Johnson and Griffith in the same breath because the Labour deputy, Cahal O'Shannon, in okay, a letter well, to- Thanks, Carl. I, I'm going to stop you there because there are so many people offering, but I take your point and your own book on Griffith uh, reassures many people on that point of him not being neglected. Yes, gentleman here. Thank you very much, Chair. To say how much we've been deeply moved and touched by the contributions today. One point I would like to make, though, and it's, it was mentioned by <coughs> Professor Dr. Kybert about uh, Edward Keegan. My father, Jack Shoulders, and his brother, from about 1916 up to 1921, were very well activists. My father, in fact, was sentenced to death in 16. Next out to De Valera, shook hands with Malin as Malin was being brought out to be executed. Heard the shots. So, uh, but when 1921 came, he was a great friend of Harry Boland and he was deeply hurt by what the events of the Civil War took, fortunately took no part in it, but instead was involved in the organizing of a very important uh, event from 1923 to 24, which was the Tauchin Games of 1924. And they were equal, they were huge, equal in scope to the Paris Olympics. In fact, they used a lot of the people from the Paris Olympics and their return back to America and other places to take part in the games. And they're not just games they like track and prizes, field. Too, didn't they? they had literary prizes as well. But there were also heavily chess, drama, sculpture, plays, they were wonderful. W.B. Yeats was intimately involved. In any event, the, the, uh, Daddy's main point was that it was a wonderful way in which the opponents from both sides were able to pull together, work together, to set up these uh, incredible games. And it was just that I'd like to go on the record as saying that these things should be not forgotten. Yes. Mm -hmm. thank you. Yes, thank you very much for that. Declan Kybert, you made the point that many of those involved in 1916 did not then mm. stay involved and didn't participate, for instance, in the War of Independence, possibly, and the Civil War. As I said, a lot of them returned precisely to the kind of cultural activities which had brought them into the movement in the first place, pipe bands, the Gaelic League, mm. and the Gaelic Games, and so on. Um, so I, I think that's a very important point, that all that was continuing. Um, just about the word republic, since Dr. Kenny mentioned it, the people on the Blaskets had a king, Ari, who was in fact elected. It was a paradoxical thing, an elective monarchy. But this is why O'Crihan was able to say that nobody could obber on focal republic in Wailing. Um, yeah. And maybe, maybe the idea of an elective monarchy is 
not the worst idea that has been come up with in the history of the human race. Lila Doolan, on the question of women on the delegation. That, uh, the, the, um, the point was made by uh, Carl McSweeney Brewer. It was he in a documentary, which I saw a short time ago, called um, Women, hold on, Extraordinary, no, Ordinary Women in Extraordinary Times. And he simply reported upon what his great aunt, Mary Sweeney, had told him, or had passed down through the generations. And it's actually, I think he made a direct quote, but I decided that might be a bit iffy, so I just said. And it was, in, in fact, people, I think the era was one in which women had a particular place. I mean, if you listen to what they said, excuse me, about Hannah Shee Skeffington and, and uh, Augusta Gregory, I mean, they were regarded as being, you know, a little bit uppity to be contemplating having anything really to do with politics. And that, it seems to me, had more to do with the culture of the time than it had to do with his culture, which might have had. And besides, it was a very important thing, sending plenipotentiaries. My God, who would have a woman? Madness. But among her many attributes, Mary McSweeney, diplomacy or negotiation wouldn't have been her strongest point. <laughs> exactly. It? No, it wasn't her strongest point. She was a good old argumentative creature. Yes. Yeah. And a talker at yeah. great length. Yeah. Angela, you wanted to come in on some of that? No, 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 no not on that, thank okay. you. President. I think there are just two points that struck me about, for example, in my own reference to the Fenians. Um, there is in the Fenian tradition in relation to land, and it goes on to the Kettles, for example, and from Fenton Lawler, and in many cases, where there was a, f a far more developed notion about how you would get the usage of the land and I know that there's a new piece coming out on, in relation to the Kettle family. And uh, they had a, a more advanced view uh, within the debate uh, uh, on landlordism. I do think as well that uh, <coughs> uh, the point is raised about, about, nine, about 1922, I think there is a bit of myth-building going on there. The suggestion, for example, <coughs> uh, there's... Uh, 1922 is that is the defining uh, uh, document, the, the passing of the 1922 Constitution. The fact is, is uh, Michael Collins opens the meeting. Uh, Darrell Fitches, as vice chairman, is there for most of the time, and you have four documents. But the fact of the matter is, the document that is transmitted is rejected, and the elements that were included, in fairness to those who put them in, uh, from the democratic program and rejected by the British. And uh, as well as that, this, as I understand it, the suggestion is that it would endanger land certainty and yeah. the treaty. And uh, the other point, I think, which I think, which I was very grateful to the, the publication by Forza was, was in relation to the, to the oath of loyalty to the king, uh, which isn't there until the passing of the 22 constitution. And it isn't there in the months before when Tom Johnson is in fact in the Parliament. And I, I, I was very grateful to them for the very long explanation that um, Tom Johnson did on behalf of the, the, his 15 members, because 
one of them didn't sign the document and, 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 the, and the constitution. And all of that, I think, is incredibly important. So the notion that you have a single document, instrument, in 1922, from which everything is derived, is quite capable of being trafficked. And I, I think it, it's inaccurate. Yeah. On the question of uh, qualified amnesia, what, what, all, so many of the deaths in civil wars, and you, you've seen this, are intimate deaths. The killer knows the victim. This happened in Listowel with repercussions. Uh, so presumably there are, such, there are such examples, which of course we know so little about, but they would be there in the culture of all the wars that you were yourself addressing. Is, is, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the memory of the uh, assassination of Tobias O'Sullivan, yeah. of James Cain, but also the killings which occurred during the Civil War, and my own family took the Free State side. I had a, a granduncle who was a, a, an intelligence officer with the Free State Army. Uh, and one see, I mean, one of the, the striking stories I heard while researching the period was of him returning home one evening and being set upon by the relatives of people who held him responsible in a larger sense, for being part of, that, of the Free State Army entity and being badly beaten up. That again, that subsequently begat revenge against those who, who had beaten him. Um, some of his old Free State Army comrades came along and, uh, and sorted out, as it were, the people who had done that. And so, in, in the back of my mind, through every conflict I've been in, and whether that's uh, in Rwanda, which was, I have to qualify by saying that was you know, propelled by a genocidal ideology, that was not the case here. But that intimacy, and then the notion that 10 years later, you're going to have, when you come out of prison, as was in the case of Rwanda, or happens in Bosnia, you're gonna to have to live in the same village with the people. And how do we, it strikes me, the urgent, the imperative of this moment is, how do we make that process possible on this island, in the north of this island, where people are expected to live alongside? Which you can do physically. Of course you can do it physically. Or you can, in the case in Belfast, as, as is happening at the moment, build ever higher, ever longer peace walls. But how do you get the, the great missed opportunity since 1998 has been to address the fundamental, and that is how people live together, how they overcome the fear and the hatred, which is the fuel of sectarianism. And it strikes me we really haven't even begun to address that. So what's your comment then to Porik Gates? And so Porik talks about, and, and, and quite rightly, and, and you know, addressing the issue of, of amnesty for those who were actually perpetrators of violence. But that will solve, I don't even say solve, that will deal with a particular legal problem. It doesn't deal with the moral crisis yeah. that underpins the tragedy of the North, yeah. the ongoing tragedy of the North. And you know, better minds than mine have, have wrestled with this uh, since the signing of the peace agreement. But it, it does strike me as being imperative that our investment is at the, the level of communities, of neighborhoods, and it's messy. It's frequently 10 steps backwards for every step forward you take. But it is about that and you know, investing in encouraging communities to speak with each other. And it is at the heart of what I said today about the responsibility of political leaders, about humility. It's not about declaring victory or saying we're on the march and you're stuffed. 
whether you say that explicitly or implicitly. And you're hearing that to some extent, are you? I worry at some of the rhetoric that I hear. And it is not the language of this great island. It's not the language of generosity, of the generosity of which we are capable. Angela Burke, you... Yeah, uh, I suppose I'd like to say something in favour of microhistory. The president was stretching out this idea of a point of time in 1922 when a given document is believed to have been constructed and with everything flowing from that. And it seems to me that by proliferating individual accounts, as we, some of us have been doing today, particularly Fargal, and Declan talking about his, his granduncle, his great-uncle, uh, one of the things that struck me, Declan said that his, his great-uncle had, his great-aunt, I suppose, uh, had children to consider. And it has often struck me, looking at the material of this, I'm not a trained historian, I work with language and literature and oral traditions, but in looking at this and looking at the individual families, they passed, they, they transitioned in the period of the, of the decade of commemoration. They transitioned from idealistic teenagers or people in their early 20s to being the parents of families. And, you know, again, I would, I would applaud what Porra Gates has suggested. Um, I, actually, the year I left school was 1969. I had become, through some process of attrition, a member of the Red Cross uh, as a schoolgirl. And I got a, a call from Father Louis something or other, who was a Jesuit, not a Jesuit, Franciscan in, in Gormanston, asking for volunteers to come to Gormanston camp to look after the children who had been removed from Belfast. And they were mostly, of course, the marginal children, but children who didn't have two parents who were already been maybe reared by a grandparent or whatever. Um, and then throughout the, the troubles that followed when I was a student, um, I, most of my friends were actually from Derry or Belfast. So I was in both cities when those things were happening. I was on the Lone Moor Road in Derry when rubber bullets were passing. But the idea that uh, loud voices triumph and make these bullying narratives for their own purposes can be counteracted. The work that Katrina Crowe has done in archives is stupendous. And you know we have the ability now to actually honour individual voices. I would also perhaps you know echo what Cahal Porter said about his findings about the famine memories, that the material is, is there, it's in And it's richer, memories. you're saying, it's richer and it's... It's richer, and but also it and complicates it. Yeah. We, need, we need to stretch out the, the, the not-quite-hard toffee to make it possible to see. I mean, scientists do it, you know, with electrophoresis. They, you know, they, 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 or a microtome, rather. They, they, they take a tiny, tiny sliver and they examine it. And then they take another sliver further along in the piece of tissue and they examine it. And I think we can do that in the humanities. I think, you know, the, the, the truth and justice, the truth and re reconciliation. I think that there is a, an incredible demography that we are inclined to neglect. In 1901, a uh, majority of the people born on the island of Ireland, more than 50% were living outside of the island of Ireland. So much of what we are discussing has been made possible by the emptying out of the island of huge, not just individuals, but huge categories of people. 
I think the establishment, the, the uh, extension of grazing, for example, and Joe Lee has that right, where he says in the post-famine adjustment, it is the, the families gave way to fields. This is having, that has, people don't really want to address that, more or less suggesting that uh, land is just land. Grazing, the transition to grazing, in, in the Mayo, when John Gibbons and I did some work on what had happened to landlords in Mayo, we found that you could put a map that fitted exactly down on top of the landlords with what the graziers owned. Mm. And this was a kind of the thing which is a problem in, in history and in historiography. Yes, I think during one of our, our is, is the, the, the reluctance to deal with class. Mm. And it, it, it's just so important. Uh, uh, I, I, I thought that that is this last six series that we, we made some progress on that, no more than we made in relation to the exclusion of women in the first lot when we were doing the War of Independence. Um, the President mentioned Gramsci, and yeah. Gramsci had a very interesting theory about what happens to a society when there's a missing middle generation. And this is what happened a lot of the time because of migration, yes. the emptying out that the President has described. And what Gramsci said is, if you have a missing generation, middle generation in a community or a country, there's no one to interpret the radical ideals of the young or the steady hand of conservatism of the old and mediate them into a viable social narrative. They're just people indulging in alternate fantasies. And uh, I think that was part, one of the reasons there wasn't more social progress through the 20th century in Ireland, you go through a rural village and there was kind of gapped houses in the middle gone. And even your image of <laughs> the films that got chopped up and we didn't see the middle <laughs> key part almost seems like a version of Gramsci's missing well, middle. Half a million people gone to England in the 1950s alone. 40,000 a year between 55 and 60. So this notion that there is a kind of a, moder a modernity emerged and that it was inevitable and difficult. It was at a huge price. Mm. But and was, uh, the, the was the no conversation on. between the very old and the very young yeah. in a shared language, because it wasn't possible, because the middle people were so often missing. Lilia, you want to come in on that? Listen, uh, all I want to add is not anything <clears throat> serious, but something not serious. You mentioned, Declan, about some of uh, the people whose houses were burnt out being assisted there is an absolutely wonderful piece by Paddy Campbell, who was the son yes. of Beatty Glenavy, who was one of the people who had a house near Dublin, <clears throat> and the IRA came to burn it down. And she, rather imperious character in her own way, said, ah, now listen, hold on a moment. You're not to take that piece. And what about that piece and the other piece? And eventually she had the entire group who had come to build the house explaining to her which pieces she ought to retain, and they would bring them out of the house. There's a good old piano in there. We can't do that in, and they all. So I would like to record a note of humor. There is no humor in anything that we have said. There is pain, of course, suffering, yes, definitely. But there is also that irrepressible Irish quality of going beyond, of finding a way, of forgiving, you know, and that's what I guess, in the end, this is all about. So what is it about then, uh, President, if I can ask you that? What Machnev's, what, what, what were you hoping to achieve with Machnev and what do you believe has been achieved? I think the, 
complexity of history, the, comp the fact that the events about which people have been writing partially are complex and interconnected, that is what. I think as well there have been significant inclusions, even in what we're doing in number six here today, when we were talking about Griffith and talking about Tom Johnson and talking about that. I think that's very important. I also think as well that if it's for others to do it in relation to when I call this about ethical remembering and so forth, if you're going to be talking about ethics, you see, no more than Hannah Arendt didn't forgive everybody. No. She didn't forgive one very significant person for very good reasons, uh, and uh, her philosopher teacher. But uh, they, I think one has to be. To, I think what we're what we're stressing is is that if the facts can be laid out, and therefore people can make interpretations of diff and different combinations, you get what I think Richard Carney calls narrative hospitality. That's one thing, but I don't, the other part about it is about what I was speaking about myself about today. I wish I could say, for example, that uh, my father and my uh, uncle reconciled. That is not the case. That is not the case. Uh, my, my father uh, suffered degrading poverty to the day he died. And, uh, uh, and I, I think you have to be honest if you're going to do the, the, the thing straightforwardly, I think this is what we've been trying to do, is by letting everything in, you are then in a position really to, 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 to stand back. And this is what one does, is that you don't invent a fiction. Fiction won't work. Mm -hmm. It isn't fiction. The, the point is lives have been lost, lives have been maimed, yeah. lives have been ruined. Other people have made vast fortunes on the backs of other people's misery. You cannot keep telling yourself that that's not the world you live in. We, 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 we for example, I, we're, I hope when we're moving on, I realise where I am now, even as president in many cases, I know the many people who speak to me who, find, who say they're finding it difficult uh, to speak of peace, as if war was inevitable, that war is our natural condition. And we're in an intolerant moment in relation to that. Uh, again and again, uh, uh, this arises. That somehow or another, this is this is a, a kind of a thing that I wish I was had James Scott here to deal with. The notion that whatever that there is an inevitability that is in the possession of the powerful, that mustn't be questioned. This happens in relation to this is when when spirituality is corrupted by authoritarian religion and dogmatic nonsense. And equally, and you have it in relation to the notion that, for example, that we are for, that there is only one kind of development possible on our planet, and that is that we all become rather like uh, uh, the warlike nations that are in the modern capitalism. I'm very proud to have to say about it. For example, when I became president, and I see the pressure, was I supposed to say I have no beliefs anymore about anything? I believed all the stuff I did about human rights, about it. I feel this. I very much identify with Ferguson because I had that experience that he has had. In, in, in. But if you try to fiction it, make it fiction, or invent abstractions, you're not helping anybody. The point about it is, is, is this, go where the pain of doing the thing right. And that means you live in the experience of the other person and you take the stuff into you. And then what you do about it all is because Amelia's right. Uh, uh, there's a time for humor. There's a time for truth. 
and humour is part of the truth and all the rest of it. And that is, in fact, how many people have survived their existence by looking at the absurdity of those who thought that they were their betters. You just look at them and laugh. <laughs> On that yeah. point, we'd like to thank you, President, very much for hosting all of this. Um, President Michael D. Higgins. I just say that our audience today consists very many about the people who have been contributing through the six seminars. And I want to say again, I thank you when you did give your paper, but I thank you again and for all of the others who are interested. And all I can say about John, thank you so much for what you have done for us. It's been marvellous. And let us all say... And I would just say, may we always give history the importance and place that it deserves yes. and is needed. Yes. 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 That, concludes, that concludes our discussion today and indeed concludes this series of six Markhnov seminars. I've already mentioned that the proceedings of Markhnov's first three sessions have been published in book form and it's available as an e-book free of charge on the website www president.ie and the proceedings of the three Martinov since have will also be published in due course. It's also the case that all the Martinov seminars are available on the website www.president.ie and they can be watched at your own pace either as a sequence of papers or as individual contributions to the themes being discussed in that particular session. It remains for me just to thank the television production team who televised our proceedings, the staff at Oris and Uxron for all their help also thank all our speakers and you who are watching and the President for originating the initiative and hosting the proceedings here in the Hyde Room at Aulis on Ixalan.